Hey there, rug merchants, cigar singers, oligarchs of the night. This is Alec Mohibian. You remember me. I'm the filthy Armenian behind Filthy Armenian Adventures. Right now, I am on Hollywood Boulevard, hot on the imaginary trail of one Big Bob Dylan for some deep, deep reportage, and I'm going to need a few more days to put my findings together. So in the meantime, I thought, now's a good time to share a very important episode from my other podcast, The Back Wall, which I co-host with Glenn Rockney of Rare Candy fame. If sports has ever meant something to you, not just now, but ever, or if the aura of sports, the sports world, has ever mystified you in any way, struck your curiosity, like, what's this obsession all about? This is the show for you. This is the only show I know of that takes a cultural, literary scalpel to the world of sport. We explore its deepest, darkest moments, its brightest moments, its wildest scandals, its relevance to psyches and cities, and of course its politics from a non-stupid perspective. Glenn is a Northern California hetero-hippie lib, and I am a Southern California reactionary homo rug merchant, and we have a lot of fun going at each other's minds and memories. We like to laugh, we like to cry, we like to scream at the refs for justice. We do play-by-play on the past, the present, and the future. We cover all the territory, no ball too deflated or out of bounds. We overturn calls on the field, the back wall, patreon.com slash the back wall. It's a video and audio show, and if you subscribe now, you can get a seven-day free trial, risk-free, which you will forget to cancel. And to show you what you're missing, here is a really important episode that requires no sports fandom or interest at all to care about. You think you know about all the big scandals of the last 15 years that turned out not to be true. You think you know about all the media hoaxes, but you're probably like, oh, that one guy, that one coach at Penn State, Jerry Sandusky, who molested all the boys on campus, well, he obviously did it, right? He's obviously... He's one of the, the few guilty ones, uh, for sure, right? I mean, that's what I thought. Until I listened to John Ziegler. I used to listen to Ziegler every night when he had a nighttime slot on KFI 640 in L.A. while I was in college in the mid-2000s. If you weren't in L.A. back then, you still might know him from something else. There was a big Atlantic Monthly cover story called The Host about the talk radio business, in which John Ziegler was the central character. The writer of that piece spent months shadowing him on the job and reported every detail down to the second, with many, many footnotes within footnotes within footnotes, of how the John Ziegler show operated out of KFI Studios. That cover story later appeared as the last chapter in a book called Consider the Lobster by its author, David Foster Wallace. Anyway, Ziegler torpedoed his entire career to prove that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Check it out and see if you agree. Bye! Devin George, long pass up to Kobe. Kobe making a move on baseline and on job and His first throw touchdown. Last throw, full intercepted by Woodson, and he's going to walk in the end zone for a touchdown. Charles Woodson, what a play! Thank you.
Okay, welcome to the back wall. We have a special episode today. I'm Glenn Rockney here with Filthy Armenian, and we have uh, a follow-up episode to our uh, um, Jerry Sandusky. Uh, Jerry Sandusky Innocent, what I believe was the episode called. Uh, um, with a question mark. With a question mark. I think mark. this time it's going to add, we're going to change that to an exclamation point, probably. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I, I think so too. Um, now, to be clear, we, we brought uh, we brought our guest here, who is who is the great John Ziegler on, um, and you can follow him on Twitter at Zygmunt Freud. Uh, you can uh, also go to, let me make sure I have it uh, correct here, all your info. Uh, you have where are you okay framingpaterno.com uh, you can go there and check that out he also has a podcast about the penn state scandal uh with the benefit of hindsight um and all that and uh first off thanks for joining us but um i must recommend everybody before you listen to this first off listen to our previous episode uh with illich talking about this and also the thaddeus russell uh, i believe it's episode 84 of thaddeus russell's podcast with john ziegler it's very very good because we're going to be jumping right into it uh first off john how you doing this evening doing well thanks for having me great great and uh before we actually get into that uh my co-host filthy armenian uh was very curious about a certain essay that was written about uh Mr. Ziegler here. <laughs> yeah yeah which i read when it when it i was I, I was a subscriber to the atlantic when it came out in, in 2004 <laughs> the cover story by david foster wallace called the host and it's a story about talk radio generally but the hero of the story is one john ziegler who at the time uh, had a show on KFI, which is the most popular talk radio station in LA. I've been listening to it since I was like three years old. Um, and he was the nighttime host. And uh, the interesting thing about John's show, and it's something that's highlighted in this in in David Foster Wallace's piece, is that you you know you weren't like a standard uh, conservative talk radio guy. You weren't Sean. You know you weren't like one of the many 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 Rush Limbaugh clones, which KABC, the other chief rival to KFI, tended to specialize in that. But KFI had a little bit of a different angle. And you weren't like that. You had you were more of a maverick type who had just arrived into to LA from, I believe it was Louisville, if I and yes. uh, a, 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 where you had a very controversial tenure as a as a local <laughs> star, which you can read about in the in the essay. Um and I wanted to kind of I just wanted before we get into Jerry Sandusky Innocent. I kind of wanted to, first of all, remind everyone that you are now forever immortalized as this literary figure because David Foster Wallace wrote about you. I wanted to ask you about that essay um, uh, first, and and then I wanted to get into like how you got into being John Ziegler because I think that's a fascinating story, which leads directly to you being the only human being on Earth who decided it was worth torpedoing his reputation to uh, bring justice to what is, I now believe after listening to you, you know, after uh, we, we, we absorbed it through one of uh, your dis the disciples of Jerry Sandusky innocent on our last episode, we didn't know anything about the case for his innocence. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of just let it just shower over us, see what I instinctively respond to. Um, now that I've, dug a little bit into your work on the case, I have no doubt in my mind that that you are 100% correct and that this may be the greatest injustice in the history of America. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but I, but it's 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 fascinating to me that you are the man who ended up becoming the uh the you know, the the messenger of this truth. And that's why I wanted to kind of get into a bit of your life. But first, what 
What's your take on the, how did you feel about the host, the David Foster Wallace thing on you? Um, well, I'm happy to talk about the host. Um, I get asked about it all the time. <laughs> uh, but bef before we do that, though, I, I want to ask you one quick question since you were a listener to my old show. Yeah. Does it surprise you, having been a listener to my old radio show on KFI, that I would be the only person that would torpedo my career for justice in a case like the Jerry Sandusky case? You know, it doesn't surprise me that a um, a voice in the night of L.A., as you were at that time to me, uh, who is marked by, in your own words, like the definitive thing, the, and it keeps coming up in the essay, is the word passion. And you had this like, you know, one of the things you brought to, one of the things you brought to, to the airwaves was this like, this, this very compelling outrage that isn't the same as the outrage we're fed through the meat, through the meat grinder right. of political discourse. It was real. Um, it was real. It was a yeah. real outrage yeah. <laughs> that felt really personal. And I, right. and, and the more I learned about you in your history, cause I didn't know anything listening to you at the time. You just appeared one day, right. Placing Mr. KFI or whoever, who became right. KABC and right. is now God knows what Mr. Telemundo, but like you just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> And at the time, I was highly partisan in my awareness. I was like, oh, well, is this conservative? Is this liberal? Mm -hmm. You know, I was very active through okay. high school, nurtured yeah. by talk radio. So I didn't quite know where to place you, except that you seemed libertarian to me at the time. So it's right. no surprise that that led you to this to this place. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But I didn't know how much I, I, did, I, did, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't want to get deeply into it. I just was curious as to whether or not that surprised you. You know, we got so many things to talk about. Let me answer your question about David Foster Wallace. So... I don't know if you know this, but I um, I did not know who David Foster Wallace was when he contacted me. Um, and I stupidly uh, never researched him because <laughs> this was and this was just before Google was becoming ubiquitous. Right. I mean, if this had happened today, the first thing you do is you Google the guy's name. Now, David Foster Wallace in literary circles was already a huge name at that time. Right. This would have yeah. been like 2004. And, um, but I'm, I'm not a, I, I, I don't read novels. I don't right. waste my time with novels. I'm a, I'm a nonfiction guy. I'm a news junkie. Mm. So he, he never came on my radar and I got this letter and he, it was written as a professor, I think, at Claremont University. Okay, so I'm not even thinking that he's a literary star. I'm thinking he's a, a wonky liberal professor, right? <laughs> and so I'm not even taking this seriously. And so I said yes. I think I must have gotten uh, approval from my boss because I was a pretty new KFI employee. But the guy followed me for, or, or you know, when I say followed, he... He shadowed me for at least two, maybe three months at work. And I have to tell you, part of the reason why I never bothered to research him is I thought he was a homeless person. <laughs> I, and I'm being totally serious here. I, he was he was completely unimpressive. Now, now I have even at that time, I'm you know, not nearly as much as I have now. Because I've lived many lifetimes and I've lived a hell of a life since the David Foster Wallace thing. But even before David Foster Wallace, I had 
run in uh, you know circles with a lot of high-profile people. And I, I, I believe, maybe erroneously, that my greatest talent is being able to see talent in others. Mm. Like I have this, this spidey sense of, okay, that person's got talent. They've got something. This guy had nothing. <laughs> this, this guy, this guy was on my radar screen. On my, on the John Ziegler, is this guy something special? Gage. He was a two out of ten. Okay, he smelled. He was disgusting. Uh, he had hor- horrible eating habits. He, um, he, ne- you know, he clearly never bathed or showered. Uh, he never said anything interesting or intelligent. And so I'm thinking. I actually, this is hilarious in retrospect, given who David Foster Wallace is now forever going to be seen as because he killed himself not long after doing this story, which turned out to be the last chapter in his last book, Consider the Lobster, was this massive feature story he did for The Atlantic on me, or mostly on me. Anyway, um, it's it's bizarre because I never thought it was going to see the light of day because I was so unimpressed by this guy. And in fact... It was many, many months after he stopped shadowing me. The first time I even had any inkling that this thing might even be real was at the end, he took me to a nice steak dinner. And I'm like, wow, there must be some money here somewhere. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and and so, so I thought, okay, well, maybe maybe this is for real. Uh, um, and um, But then nothing happened for at least six months, maybe even longer than that. And I contacted him. I said, dude, whatever happened to this article he's oh it's coming out soon and then i got a call from the atlantic and from a so-called fact checker and i'm thinking okay this is going to be a pretty extensive phone call because he spent two three months with me supposedly it's going to be a very long piece in my recollection they asked me three questions (laughs) one of which was was i really the golfer of the year in 1984 in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I thought, what? <laughs> this, after everything he and I talked about, yeah. they're, gonna, they're, they're concerned about whether or not I was the Bucks County Courier Times golfer of the year in 1984, <laughs> which, by the way, I was. Uh, nice. well, I shouldn't have been, but I was. Um, and um, anyway, uh, so when the thing came out, I was stunned. And it was a 23-page cover story. I was even more stunned that David Foster Wallace was like this famous, almost legendary literary figure. And then when I read it, I'm like, this piece of crap would <laughs> never have been published by anybody if the person writing it was Foster David Wallace instead of David Foster Wallace. I mean, that, I mean, that's... If, if I had been... Uh, on the receiving end of what he published, I would have sent it back saying, come back to me when you learn how to write. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was that bad, not to mention this last thing I'll say before you you didn't ask me anything you want, but in the first, in the first paragraph of this 23 page cover story for Atlantic, the first paragraph has at least three complete falsehoods. The Mm. first paragraph. Totally. None of them about your golfing, though. No, 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 no none of them. Nothing about. No, okay. they got that right. They got the fact, they fact checked the golfing. That was the one that stunk to them. That's gonna, like, that's yeah. going to stick. Yeah, because that would have stung you if you got sh- <laughs> if you got shafted on the golfing prowess. You know? So, yeah. and by the way, other people have said similar things about David Foster Wallace's work when it comes to factual 
accuracy. Mm. I'm not the only one. Um, but now since he killed himself and it's always, it's been my theory, it's just my theory, although and I got a lot of heat for this theory when he died, I, you know, because it was suicide. I theorized that a part of why he killed himself was the pressure of having to be a genius. And when you know that you're either not really a genius right. or no longer a genius, the best way, especially for someone like him who had written Infinite Jest, which, you know, people love, especially in the literary world, the best way to do that and to live forever as a genius is to kill yourself. That's the best way to do it. And I took a lot of heat for that. But in the trailer of the movie they made about David Foster Wallace, in the trailer, the, the David Foster Wallace character actually says, I am paraphrasing, my greatest fear has always been that I was a fraud. Mm-hmm. That's actually what he says, the, the character says in the trailer. And I felt like, well, that's pretty good vindication for my, for my theory, especially since I took so much heat for that. So that's my day. I don't know if, the, if that opens up a more a larger uh, can of worms, but no, that's the no, David Foster Wallace tour. No, it's a. I think it's a very sound theory. Um, it's a very sound reaction to the to a piece that's written about you. Um, I don't quite remember my impression when I read it at the time. I was kind of like just it, to me, you know, at the time, I bet you anything. I thought that he was being he was being a kind of too much of a lib when he wrote it. He was kind of like, Ooh, look at this. I'm, I'm a, a Mr. Observer in this, in the talk radio un- in this conservative talk radio universe. Um, I probably felt like he was being a little bit of a snob when writing it, rereading it today and seeing all that's happened since, especially uh, what you would expect from someone in his milieu to react to the world of talk radio. I thought it was a great deal more at least fair Mm-hmm. than it seemed at the time. Um, well, uh, I have a theory on that too, which I think you're going to probably agree with. I don't know this, but I'm guessing from from the little interaction that we've had and how your how your brain works and how you understand talk radio and the media. What I think happened here was his original intent was to do a hatchet job on talk radio from the left-wing perspective. And then right. after spending two or three months with me, he kind of liked me. He did. I, I think he kind of liked me. Right. No, he and he celebrates you in that piece. I mean, I t- to you it may seem like a piece of shit, but like he's to to a clear to a totally outside person reading it now, you're celebrated not only as a an emblem of or like as a kind of an emblem of what the medium can do, because uh, your talents. He celebrates your talents up and down, mm-hmm. very diversely. Your your he celebrates your humor, your your quickness on your feet, uh, the way you're able to. Uh, kind of slide into the very strict commercial demands of the medium in terms of just timing and everything, mm-hmm. doing all that while maintaining a sincere level of stimulation, which is the big word by right. KFI, more stimulating talk radio. And also the most interesting thing about the piece to me and the most interesting thing about it in terms of making me curious about you is the simmering war that he sort of described I don't know if it turned out that way in your later career at KFI, because I don't remember how it Mm. ended with you and KFI. Maybe you can tell us if you feel like it. Um, But he kind of, he set he set out a little, he kind of set out this drama playing out between you and the program manager, where you want it to be more individual. You want it to be more 
weird and personal <laughs> and they wanted you to talk about the latest rape case <laughs> like nine right. you know 99 right. of the time because that's what gets to, <clears throat> that's that's, that's a, I, I again i haven't i haven't read the piece in forever um so i'll take your your word for it on on that um I, yeah i mean i only lasted there four years because i got into a battle with john and ken the afternoon hosts um basically over what the main reason why i'm not in talk radio anymore which is um, I use the, the sports analogy. You know, sports has always been a little bit about business, um, but it used to be mostly sport. Right. Now it's like 98% business, right? And mm-hmm. uh, um, well, talk radio used to be, it was always a business, but it used to be whatever percentage it was. I don't know what, but in my mind, <laughs> in my delusional world, it was mostly about freedom of expression, the truth, entertainment, that kind of thing. Personality. When I now today, it's just like professional sports. It is completely right. a business. It is just a business. Uh, you you do not say anything at all that will offend your core audience in any way, shape, or form. You are there to do therapy for a cult. That's what talk <laughs> radio is. It is yeah. therapy for a cult. And if you, you know, as a therapist, you want your patient to keep coming back and paying your bills. You don't tell them something that they don't want to hear, uh, especially when they have a lot of other options. Right. <laughs> There's yeah. plenty of other options, especially in the podcasting realm. Totally. Um, so so now here we, <clears throat> here we are just completely you're just placating your 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 cult. And that's not something I'm interested in. I'm not good at that. I can't do it. Uh, and it's why I'm I'm not in talk radio. I haven't been in talk radio for a long time. Never will be in talk radio ever again because it's just not who I am. No, you're so right because I actually grew up. I I, I kind of just realized this growing up, but I always thought it was stimulating when you kind of hate forty percent hated the guy that you listen right. to for sports. Right. Where you're just like fuck that guy. You know, you're at work. You hear this guy. You're this asshole. But you tune in every day because you because you love it. You don't want it. You saw the game. They saw the game, and you want to interpret it. But it, that's lost. You know, like that's lost now. That, I, so I'm curious what the this is. Yeah, this is all very relevant, you know, in subtle ways to where we're going to eventually arrive at. And I'm going to go further into the past after this this subject closes. But I'm curious what to explain to the audience. John and Ken is still going, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, John and Ken's the number one rated L.A. talk radio show f- my entire life at this point. I called in to the John and Ken show from my mom's office when I was six years old for the first time. <laughs> Literally. I don't remember what fucking topic it was. I just wanted to get on. And I did. I got on the air (laughs) somehow. I guess that's how dumb the average caller is that I was able to slip through the cracks, I guess. (laughs) And, 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 you know, I would listen to it nonstop 3 3 p.m. to 7 p.m., four hours a day. And they were kind of, you know, at first they struck me as kind of libs, actually, as a kid. It wasn't until they got onto the Gray Davis anti-Gray mm-hmm. Davis train that they kind of emerged more as like pseudo-libertarian type of voices. But as David Foster Wallace pro- says in the piece, and as you're reminding us now, they're all 100% about hitting the out- the, the, the proper outrage buttons uh, for their audience, no matter what it means, mm-hmm. no matter what position it means to, to decide on. They are pure, uh, they are pure uh, uh, showbiz puppets. That, and I think that's got to be the nub of what your conflict was with them. Um, yes. And I'm curious what it was, specifically what it was, because I don't remember. I wasn't. Well, <clears throat> it, it ended up <clears throat> coming to a boil over the Iraq war. 
Um, the John and Ken were were literally, literally when the Iraq War began, hosting pro Iraq War rallies. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were because it was very popular uh, at the yeah. time. I mean, so so they were they were all in, all in, and and then when things started to turn from a uh, you know from a popularity standpoint, and Bush's rating, you know, after Katrina and Bush's in the tank, and and everyone hates the Iraq War, they completely changed history. By the wow. way, they did this. They did the same thing on illegal immigration. John and Ken were against Prop One Eighty Seven when it happened here in which was probably even before your time. Uh, Remind um, me what, which one that was. That was, that was in, in my opinion, probably 187 was the last chance California had of, of holding the line on illegal immigration because it, was, it, was, it basically took away or prevented uh, illegal aliens from getting any public services. Mm, right. and, um, and they were against that uh, when, it, when it passed and then got eviscerated by the courts. Um, and then they decided very strategically that and, and smartly because John, you know, John and Ken are very smart guys. They're very smart. And I and I consider that um, John to be exceedingly talented when he has Ken there. When he doesn't have Ken there, he's lost. It's so um, interesting. But but, um, but but John, I think, realized that here's the deal. You need. You can't just rely on the news of the day, even in Los Angeles, where there's always something going on to keep juicing your ratings, especially after OJ. Right. OJ, everybody's ratings. It was, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. You knew exactly what you were going to talk about for two years. What was the OJ trial? And but then but but you can't rely on there being an OJ trial at all times. So you need a fallback position that's going to stimulate your your core audience. And they realized that was illegal immigration. And so they jumped all over illegal immigration. Now, I, I haven't listened to them in years. I don't I presume they still are on that. But they they knew that all you need, um, you know, a KFI is to get four or five percent of those listening to the radio at any moment. And you're a big success in afternoon drive. Well, it's a pretty safe bet that four or five percent of anyone listening to the radio in the afternoon in the, in Southern California is going to be pissed off about illegal immigration. Yeah. And so, so that was, and so what they would basically do is they would look at the news. Is there anything that's going to Trump illegal immigration on that particular date for our audience, uh, put their finger up in the wind. And, and if there was, that's what they would talk about. If there wasn't, it would go back to illegal immigration. Oh, gosh. And it's it and it's all it's all just a very calculated deal. And I I was, you know, part of there were so many things along the lines. It never it's never one thing, but um, you know, they Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor at this time, and I was very anti-Schwarzenegger because I saw him as a fraud that he was and that he was going to destroy the Republican Party in California, and that he was turning into a liberal, and that this was going to be a complete disaster. And I'm sure John and Ken knew that too, except John's kids went to the same school as Arnold Schwarzenegger's kids. Oh, <laughs> and and um, and when they finally got Schwarzenegger in the studio, um, my gosh, um, I, I think Arnold's DNA was probably left 
uh, in the studio uh, after the the uh, blowjob that John gave him um, uh, in that particular interview. Uh, um, you know, completely letting him off the hook wow. on all sorts of things, and so that that angered me uh, quite a bit too. But um, there was a there was an, a situation where we got into it on the air. We were actually got into it off the air. John said something incredibly racist to me, which I'll never forget. I was stunned. And then we went on the air and I stupidly, I should have just, just dropped it. And I, <laughs> I did not drop it. And it started an on-air fight. <clears throat> oh, and I no. think, <clears throat> and I think my theory on it is because I had to go do my show at seven o'clock. John being a very smart guy realized that he had just stepped in it by saying something very, very racist to me off the air. And he needed to be the first person to complain. Because in the me in, in life in general, but in, especially in the media, the first person to complain is almost always going to be perceived as right, especially if they're, you know, yeah. the the more important person at work. Right. And John was clearly the more important person at work than than me, and so he clearly immediately, while I'm on the air, starts with his campaign uh, to to shape the narrative of of what had occurred, and at that point. K, you know, KFI was didn't want to pay me out my contract, but they they effectively tortured me. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm not using that term lightly. They effectively, in in broadcasting terms, tortured me for a year before my contract finally ended, and I wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of quitting. So that's what ended up happening. Wow, you are not a man to go down without without a without a fight and a scream. <laughs> I think that. I got to know what the rate. What was the race? What, what was the racist thing he said? Are you for comfortable? Yeah, I'll say it. I've said it publicly before. I mean, it, it needs full setup, but it was John. It was a perfect storm of circumstances. Ken was off that week, and John was tired because of that, because he's no good without Ken, and he has to work three times as hard. Yeah, and I could, and he was cranky as hell. And by the way, it was nine eleven. Happened to be nine eleven anniversary, and which I think also f helped, you know, facilitate all this. Mm. And um. And I say to him off the air, I say, John, do you really believe what you're saying about the Iraq war? Or is this just for ratings? That, that's almost a direct quote. Yeah. What I said. And, and he gives me. Rah, 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 rah. And then he stops and he pauses. And I thought he was done. And he says to me, no, I really believe it. Because trying to control Muslims is like trying to control black people. It'll never happen. Huh. And I'm like, what? What the hell did I just hear? What the hell? What? Yeah. And I don't even think I said anything in response because I was just so stunned. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's I think John knew he had really stepped in it right. at that point. And uh, and that, you know, like a lot of things in life, it was a it was a perfect storm of, of crap. And I and it ended up with me leaving KFI. But I have. I have honestly never, except for maybe a few times during COVID where I was really pissed off, I have never, never once thought, gee, I wish I was back on KFI. <laughs> it just <laughs> never, never once did it yeah. ever even uh, occur to me. I mean, I just, I, I despise what that industry in general has become and what that station in particular is. Well, it's interesting to it's interesting to talk about what that industry in general has become because that is sort of part it's 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 this kind of the mortar from which 
the witch hunt for Jerry Sandusky was formed. I mean, talk radio is kind of thought of as conservative, 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 but it's really just a media, it's a media kind of format, which has basically been mimicked by all media now. Um, all mainstream media does the same thing. CNN is nonstop coming up with outrage stories, mm -hmm. except that their audience is national and not local. And so it's got all the more reason, it's got all the more like likeliness that it's going to have to be something really sensational that can capture the mind of every woman and every man in America, not just a local case that you can kind of hammer to the, to the hilt, you know, moral panics sell. Oh, yeah, what right. I think you're saying moral, moral panics. panics sell. And it's not going to surprise you to know that um, John and Ken totally bought in hook, line and sinker on the whole Jerry Sandusky story. And when right. I became involved in it, apparently they even mocked me oh, about gosh. it because I went on the Today Show twice about it and they were forced to talk about it, I guess, because they they, you know, like everybody else, blindly jumped in on this story. And, and look, um, you know, I'm somebody who when the story first broke. Back in November 2011, I presumed that Jerry Sandusky was at least mostly, if not totally guilty. That was my right. fallback yeah. position on this, which is, I think, important context. I, you know, and in fact, everything about this case is upside down. All of my biggest mistakes in this 10 year investigation, and I have made many, 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 many mistakes, have been in the direction of being not willing enough right. to be skeptical of the case against Jerry Sandusky. I mean, in retrospect, I can't believe I ever bought any of this because mm. it's completely ridiculous and it's obvious BS. Now, I didn't have the, the facts to be able to, to come to that public conclusion because, you know, as toxic as it was, I knew uh, that you're going to pay a huge price, maybe a, a, a death penalty price, for for going against the grain on on a story this toxic, but it took me. It wasn't until um, twenty thirteen, uh, you know, two years after the story broke, that I became really convinced that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. And now I'm not just convinced. I mean, I'm I'm morally certain of it and it's not even close that's the most amazing part about the whole case i say this all the time is that because uh, i get mocked i get mocked on a daily basis not just a little mocked i mean i get brutally mocked on social media on a daily basis for my position on this case and the most amazing part of it is not only am i certain i'm right it's not even close not even close. There's, there's, when you get into it, there, it, it, it is impossible to come to any other logical conclusion than, than the one that is so shocking to people, which is that Jerry Sandusky is totally innocent of the crimes for which he was accused and convicted. Right. And and this all start. I mean, really, the thing that that sells it to the average viewer, because I'll put myself where, where I was. I'm, I'm 21 years old in 2011 when when this story breaks. You hear pedophilia. And not just pedophilia. It wasn't just, uh, you know, oh, man, this guy made a few comments, groped a couple of days. It was like, no, full on sodomy in the shower, like full on sodomy. <clears throat> People saw it. it was insane. So to my, in my brain, hundreds of times, you're yeah, hundreds of times, <laughs> hundreds of times. Okay, I, I'm but, going, this is crazy. And right? Glenn, like, Glenn, you just put out your finger on a really important part of the case, which is that the allegations are so outrageous and yeah. disgusting to people 
that very few people want to get into the details. Right. Exactly. And, and, and so and so in order to understand this case, the details are extremely important. But no one wanted to do that. And especially no one in the media wanted to do that because the media loved this story. This story was perfect for them because it involved the destruction of a legend in Joe Paterno, not not Jerry Sandusky. See, it's I'm I'm still to this day baffled uh, where where I still have to um, convince people who have studied the case very closely I had this happen just recently with someone who's been investigating it for a major news outlet for over two years. Um, and they, even they still can't fully comprehend the significance of Joe Paterno in the case. If you take the Joe Paterno aspect out of the case, everything about this is different. Yeah. Every, every single aspect of this case is totally different. And it all went in against the the uh the the due process of Jerry Sandusky because right. Paterno was such a massive celebrity and because his his downfall in this Greek tragedy was so dramatic and so fast uh and happened the week after he just become the winningest coach in the history of college football and because ESPN was on it 24/7 this this was a story that had every aspect of a massive moral panic and rush to judgment. Um, I mean, the only one that I can even come close to comparing it to for historians is that this was effectively the the, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case uh, of this century. I don't know if you guys are familiar even, with that I'm case. I'm not even but, sure what that is. Yeah. Okay, wow, you guys are so young, you don't even know that. But Charles Lindbergh <laughs> was the most famous man in the world and his baby got kidnapped and the whole world needed desperately blood in 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 vengeance for this horrible death of this child and you know it's it's my opinion that i don't i don't know what for sure happened in that situation but i guarantee you that the trial was a complete fraud I and mean, right. everyone who's ever looked at that that trial knows it's a it was a complete fraud well right. the same kind of thing happened here where in the midst of this moral panic and rush to judgment and media firestorm we needed vengeance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anybody anybody who even stood up at all for Jerry Sandusky was immediately labeled as a pedophile enabler. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then so who's going to do that? Well, that's I mean, the th- yeah. That's the thing that that's the thing that's so uh fundamental to the pedophile accusation in general. It's a, it's it's akin to the racist accusa- accusation on the left, mm. except it's even more powerful than the Way racist more powerful. one. Mm. Because the racist one, we're kind of like, eh, we, you know, there's enough of us who are wary of the racism charge after these many hundreds of years of it being a political weapon. Right. But the pedophile one, nobody's going to stand up against. Everybody is equally outraged, disgusted by the concept of the existence of that behavior. And therefore, they're all scared to even be seen because anything that's remotely related to saying, hey, wait a minute, makes you a pedophile defender. And the the racism version of this was actually, there's a very recent version of this. It's the George Floyd case and Derek Chauvin. I don't want to get into that here, but that's another case where I don't think well, it's even remotely possible that Derek Chauvin had, had got a just trial. 
right. based on everything. And I, I, I agree with you about the trial, but it's you, you, what you said inadvertently, um, maybe I think it was inadvertent, uh, was, re- was really important on a different uh, part of this story. Uh, and, and that goes to, to, the, to the media. You said that um, it's a lot like the racism charge, except it's worse. Well, part of the reason why it's worse is that we have seen as a culture me- that the, the many false charges of racism, we've become immune to some degree to that charge. Not always. Obviously, no. the, 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 fa- you know, the Floyd case, the media went so b- bananas over that, that you know, the, the, the left had their riots and we had to yeah. have a conviction and all that. I get all that. And I'm not even talking about the, the facts of the case itself. I'm just talking about the, the, the atmospherics of it. I'm a big believer that the media has largely lost its power to impact events except in two circumstances. One is when they all work together, they have to work in, in almost virtual unison. And, and, and the second is, when the subject is one that not only outrages, but we don't have a lot of experience with. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, the media has some influence over politics, but not very much anymore because everybody knows they're politically liberal. And and anybody who is not a Democrat uh, looks very skeptically at any allegation against a, a Republican candidate, especially right before an election. So they, they can only really influence things on the margins. But with COVID, for instance, brand new, we'd never experienced it, and they all acted in unison. Right. They had enormous power. With Sandusky, we had never seen a story like this at that high-profile level, uh, and they all acted in unison. In a in a panic during a slow news week, there was nothing going on in the sports world that week. Right, um, and and that's when the media has huge impact. And was it right before college football season? Right, that was right. no, it was right in the middle of college football right season. But here's here's why that week was so important. Baseball had just ended. The NBA was on strike. Mm. Hockey, no one cares about in November. Yeah. College basketball hasn't started yet. Football is in its early November lull before, you know, the playoff race really heats up. Mm -hmm. There was nothing going on that week. And November back then was still a ratings sweeps month. So ESPN, and by the way, ESPN was carrying Penn State's game that Saturday. Yeah. So this was, I mean, when, when they, on, on that Monday morning, when they sat down, here's what happened. I don't know, don't know this, but I, I feel like I, I'm very confident that this is what happened. You know, that over the weekend, when Jerry Sandusky gets arrested, it's not that big a story because no one remembers Jerry Sandusky. And he had, he's been retired for 10 years. He was All only right. an assistant coach. You know, very few people outside of State College remember Jerry Sandusky. So the initial bombshells weren't nearly as big as I think the prosecution was expecting or hoping for. But when ESPN sits down on that Monday, and says, okay, what are we going to do this week? This is a really slow week. And someone in that meeting says, well, you know, if you read this grand jury presentment in a way that, you know, is negative to Joe Paterno, it certainly sounds like Joe Paterno will help cover up Jerry Sandusky's crimes. And then someone else looks at that and goes, yeah, it does kind of read that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Holy yeah. crap. We yeah. got a Joe Paterno story here. 
and let's flood the zone on this thing. Well, as soon as they flood the zone, Penn State craps their pants. They panic. They cancel Joe Paterno's regular weekly press conference. They separate themselves from Joe Paterno. There's blood in the water. Once the, once the media sees blood in the water, it's over, especially for an 84-year-old guy like Paterno who really shouldn't have been coaching anymore. Right, no, he, can't not for 10 years, him, yeah. he, he can't defend himself. He's got this moronic son, Scott Paterno, acting as his, his lawyer and his PR advisor, which was a major factor in all this. Scott and I hate each other's guts. Uh, you know, and I'm, I have very good reason to hate Scott. I, I hate Scott Paterno more than I hate uh, uh, John Cobell uh, <laughs> by, by far, um, uh, because at least John Cobell has talent. Uh, Scott Paterno <laughs> is a complete moron. Um, but anyway, so you have this and this is where academia, the media is terrible, terrible at understanding the self-interest of most entities, but they are really terrible at understanding the self-interest of academia. Academia, and we've seen this happen so many other times. We just saw it in the BYU-Duke fake yeah. racism charge, yeah, where BYU immediately self-flagellates, immediately pleads guilty to things that didn't happen. They immediately virtue signal. This is in the DNA of every, especially state-run academic institution. And that's what Penn State does. They're in the middle of this firestorm. Make it stop. Make it stop. How do we make it stop? Right. Fire everybody. Right. Fire everybody. What, even Paterno? Yeah, fire him too. I mean, mm -hmm. that's yeah. that's what they did. And there were people on the inside of the Penn State Board of Trustees who had wanted Paterno gone for a long time. Yeah. And the Th governor of the state, one of the president of the university, Graham Spanier, just wrote an amazing book, which people should read in this case, called Inside the Lion's Den. I think it's what it's called, In the Lion's Den. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and he wanted uh, him gone. And so, you know, this was a, a coup d'etat in a lot of ways. This was a perfect storm, but this had nothing to do with the strength of the case against Jerry Sandusky. In fact, it served as a great way to distract from how pathetic the case against Jerry Sandusky actually was. Right. right. And I, I, uh, go ahead, Glenn. No, I, and just when, because before we got on, I, I uh, John had said, he's like, so do you guys like agree with me or, or, or not? And I was like, yeah, I just want a little more information on a couple of things. And that you said that they want Joe Paterno gone, right? Back in 2011, this guy is like the cockroach that just won't go. He's like, he's yeah. just, well, not everybody, but, but one key person in particular, John Surma, the vice chairman okay. of the board of trustees at Penn State, whose nephew, he blamed he blamed Joe Paterno for his nephew having a very bad experience at Penn State where he was a, a short-term football player, uh, and he didn't believe that Paterno had treated him well. Uh, that nephew ends up uh, having a very difficult life and overdosing and dying. Uh, and, and so Surma and his, and his brother Vic had it out for Joe Paterno. And I, I think, you know, I'm the only person that I know that's even ever mentioned this, but the first time that my spidey senses started to go, wait a minute, not just on, not on the story. I already knew that the story, as we were being told, made no sense. What I'm talking about from a global perspective is when they announced the firing of Joe Paterno and Jerry and, and Graham Spanier, it's, it's the biggest moment in the history of the Penn State Board of Trustees, by far, by far the biggest moment that this, this group of people has ever been involved with in their professional lives. This is what they're going to be remembered for forever because it's the end of Joe Paterno's 50-year career at Penn State as the head football coach. And who makes the announcement? 
not the chairman of the board of trustees. No, he's in the third row. Steve Garbin is his name. He's in the third row with his head down. The guy making the announcement is the vice chairman of the board of trustees, John Surma, who I just told you had the vendetta mm-hmm. against yeah. Joe Paterno. I look at that and I go, wait a minute. Right. That's a coup. That is a coup right there. And that was before I knew any of this. Right. And the first, it, and it yeah. turned out that that's exactly what happened. So, you know, you were saying like earlier, um, one of the ways, one of the key ingredients in this becoming a an absolutely successful, undisputed until you moral panic at a, at a national historic scale, like century, like like crime of the yes. century type of scale. Yes, yes, is that people are instinctively, absolutely unwilling to to, to actually look into a case involving any anything resembling. Uh, pedophilia or sexual abuse unless it's like safely unless it's like you know safely adult safely serial killer on netflix uh sneaking into women's homes and like safely pornographic for the for the for the bourgeois mind they will not they will not probe into the details i on the other hand i'm ready to go i've got my spectacles on i've got my little my monocle my little uh uh, gay sex monocle that i'm gladly always ready to just put right on and say hey wait a minute what is the first thing you're telling me happened here and this is what happened when we had your disciple on Ilyich, the other week the first thing i heard and again i didn't hear any of this when it happened i didn't i heard that you know i just generally absorbed this as oh he raped a bunch of boys in the ass in 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 a shower on penn state doesn't sound sounds a little weird but okay if you're saying no one was around um so then i hear for the first time that the nux of the 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 uh, the the rub of the of the well no pun intended but <laughs> the the main accus- <laughs> the initial round of accusations or whatever is that he forced football young football players high school football players to commit oral sex on him. And the first thing that little, my little um, whole monocle does is, is it is it does a little twinkling thing, which is like a little false, like red, a red light starts beeping. False, false, false. Because in the vast majority of these cases, as we know from the Catholic priest, from the Catholic for, where, where it did happen, it's not, the, the oral sex is being performed by the predator, not the other way around. That's something that most people just don't know because they assume because uh, society assumes that oral sex is this great punishment and not an actual pleasure for the person who provides it. Not so if you're gay. If you're gay, oral sex is a very strong, strong motivation to wake up in the morning and try to find a place where you can commit it. So that was the first sign to me just because I'll I know these things. For, I'll, I'll take yeah, your word yeah, I, I, You thought there was one stone unturned. You thought there was no stone unturned in your investigation of this case, yeah. and I'm giving you that stone. Well, that well, was, well no, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this because, I'm, and I don't want to get you off your tangent, but oh, no. I, I, think you'll find it, I, I think you'll find this fascinating. Yeah. I, I have told um, Jerry Sandusky's defense attorneys that um, if based if we knew then what I know now, I would have told them, here's how you win the case. You need only middle-aged conservative women who have had teenagers as sons and gay men on your jury. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, oh. You, and you will be acquitted. That, that there would have been an acquittal in my, in my experience because those are the two groups of people that are 
the most easily convinced that this story is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the moms know their teenage boys and how they act and what they're uh, you know, capable of. Right. And, you know, and, and, uh, and by the way, you know, nothing was ever found in the laundry. Uh, how is, how is that possible? Um, you know, um, but, but the, but gay men um, have, have been um, very easily convinced in this case. And my theory on it is, of course, they were easily convinced that these stories aren't true because these stories were literally written by heterosexual men. Right. And <laughs> they're and, written. And, yeah. <laughs> Gay porn by heterosexual men who don't know what they're talking about is right. exactly what <laughs> this this case is. And that's why, like, yeah, even if I didn't even if I didn't hear a word of John Ziegler's side of the story or Ilya, yes, I'll throw you just, my draft away. With yeah. The, you have to throw that away. You, you yeah, just yeah. just just give me that one detail and 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 it would set off the alarms. And so, yeah, to get back to my rant about uh, more stimulating cock radio, there is no, <laughs> there is no, have has anyone tried to get a blowjob from someone who doesn't know how to give a blowjob? It's not, it is We're, not yeah. something that people chase. Receiving a blowjob is not as glamorous as it sounds when yeah. you're supposedly getting it from a 15-year-old straight football player who would who would rather kill you than blow you. That is not something that happens. It's just yeah. not even well, it's almost it, not even physically possible. Right. Well, it, well, you know what else is not physically possible? Having a 60-some year old man with no testosterone right uh, <laughs> a, 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 anally anally rape teenage heterosexual boys. Right. Who apparently have never heard of running away or clinching their butt cheeks, um, and and to do this, <laughs> and 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 to do this, by the way, with no pornography, yeah, right. no drugs, no alcohol, no payoffs, right? It's in the history. It doesn't happen. It doesn't in the history. In the history, I, I I ask everywhere I go, somebody please please show me a serial pedophile who was never accused of using any of those things to ply their victims. And you mentioned the Catholic Church case, which I talk about all the time here because I grew up Catholic. I went to a Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic college at Georgetown. I had a lot of engagement with gay priests. And this, the, the Catholic Church scandal was gay priests grooming boys that they either knew to be gay or presumed were going to be gay. Right. And right. and they were not raping heterosexual teenage boys. They were right. they were that was not what was happening. Even even um you know the um spotlight movie mm-hmm. uh which gratuitously has a, a scene with Joe Paterno making a cameo by the way. That's right. Uh, uh, that's um, right. Oh my god. Uh, uh, even the spotlight movie about what happened in Boston with the Catholic Church acknowledges that that's the essence of the Catholic Church scandal. Gay priests with boys who were either gay or showed signs of being gay. And, you know, it, it's amazing. One of uh, the so-called sex crimes experts, a guy who's a total fraud, Jim Clemente, who, uh, who who is a consultant on the TV show Criminal Minds. Mm. He's done some 
uh, specials for CBS where he got sued and they had to settle because he had a, a cockamamie theory on the JonBenet Ramsey case. Uh, this this is a guy I dealt with for hours getting ready for my interview with Jerry Sandusky because I was stupid and naive and I thought, well, this guy's an expert. He must really know what he's talking about. And he he guaranteed me, guaranteed me that he uh, I would get Jerry Sandusky to confess if I just followed his directions. And I followed his directions 100% didn't get anything uh, close to a confession. But here's where I'm going with this. Jim's narrative, because he was hired by Scott Paterno and the Paterno family to come up with a narrative that would somehow salvage Joe Paterno while burying Jerry Sandusky. He claims that Jerry Sandusky is in the top 1% of all pedophiles that he's ever mm-hmm. seen. And, I, and, and my response to that is, how does the guy in the top 1% forget about the fact that he's the opposite of a criminal mastermind? He's a, he's a knave. He's a moron. Yeah, he, 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 I don't even know how he was a defensive coordinator at a very high level. Right. But how does a guy who is a 1% level pedophile not pick one gay boy in his entire career right. as a pedophile? Not right. one. He went 0 for 36, as far as I can tell. The 36, he certainly went 0 for 8 for the guys that were uh, uh, who, who testified at trial. How do you go 0 for 8? Because they're all heterosexual. Every single yeah. one of them. Right. Now, the first thing you would want as a as a pedophile or a, a febophilia, which is technically what he, he right. was accused of, uh, if, the, if you're going to commit a febophilia, the first thing you want, right, is somebody who might want to be there or at least won't be repulsed by being right, there. Right. Yeah, and, and especially it, if you're not thinking of murdering them or being like, if, if you're you're not getting off on the rape aspect, you just literally are getting. And, try, and there's yeah. no evidence. There's no there's no, no. one ever got beat up. No, there's no, I mean, there's no, there's no evidence of any of that. There's nothing. Well, there's literally nothing where there, there should be mountains of evidence. So yeah, these, now we, we can get into that. Now there's these, I'm just like, I'm just still at the level of belt, like, like the, the accoutrements and the accessories, as you say, no porn, which is no porn found in the entire Sandusky universe. Right. Zero. Zero, zero porn. Well, before we even get to the porn, the guy has no testicles. Yeah. Well, that's something that that we learned in the, in the medical records that never came out of trial that um, I am still incensed about today. And for the record, his medical records say, and this is at the time of two of the most important allegations against him, the allegations of so-called victim number one and victim number nine, victim number nine had the most dramatic stories of anybody. And by the way, got paid by far the most money. He's the one that was claiming he was, ass raped in the basement, screaming and yelling and, you know, blood and yeah. all, all sorts of ridiculousness. Um, at, at the age of 15 and 16, by the way, yeah. um, which is which is also insane. Um, but um, the the reality here is that I've lost my train of thought. So where, where I was You're talking about I the was, guy who was the guy who was initially the, 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 the victim who was claiming he got ass raped the most in that shower. Uh, got paid the most money. Got right? paid the most money. Uh, he was fifteen to sixteen. He, I think, was he a, not a marine? Eventually, no, no. That was that's the guy. That's the guy in the shower. But the uh, the the, the, rea- the reality here is, I, I can't believe I lost my train of thought. But I, I'm sure it'll come back to me. But I, yeah. the reality here is that these allegations. Oh, oh, okay. Now I, we're back with the testicles. Okay, right. so, testicles. so it, was at, it was at the time. It was, it was at the time. At the time, it was at the time of these two allegations. Okay, 2008, 2009, that in his medical records, 
His doctor writes, and these are extensive medical records, that Jerry Sandusky has virtually no testicular matter. Mm. Virtually no testicular matter. Now, these are all teenage boys, right? <laughs> the, the, if, if they're really being forced to uh, to give and get uh, oral sex and be ass raped by Jerry Sandusky, um, they're going to notice that. And, right. and and this is a golden ticket. This is a golden ticket to millions of dollars in this case. If you can identify Jerry Sandusky's genitalia and not one person ever did that ever at trial or in this in the settlement documents, which we got leaked. The settlement documents that we got leaked are so incredibly important because they blow away in this particular situation. They blow away the concept that you could have 36 guys be sexually assaulted by Jerry Sadowski, yeah. get money from Penn State, and not one of them ever said, you know, I always thought it was weird. Jerry had, like, no balls. Yeah, no right. one ever said that. Yeah, it's, Harvey Weinstein was the first thing you heard about. Was his, was his, was his, like, oh, the guy had an insane, like, weird penis and stuff. Like, you heard about right. that. People, like, yeah. rushed the to vein, talk about that. The vein, Harvey's vein. Yeah. yeah, well, it's not just the fact that they didn't identify it, which itself is obviously a major red flag. It's also the fact that how does a man with no balls have such a libido that he's that he's uh, ass raping every single uh, uh, high school football player in the state of Pennsylvania? Like that's another part that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Let alone trying to get them. Th the whole thing falls apart. I mean, I had no idea about that, obviously. But when that came, when we were, we, when I heard that, it's just the story. None of nothing about this story, as you put. There's no evidence yeah. whatsoever, and, and, and it should. And, I, and let me emphasize. People have this impression that these kinds of things can happen in the modern era without evidence. Right. And that's just not true. It's just not true. The, the, there's a reason, by the way, that these cases very rarely go to trial. What normally happens in a, in a pedophile case is they have an allegation. They determine that the allegation seems credible. They get a warrant for the guy's computer. They get the computer. They see all sorts of child pornography. They they, they right. charge him with child pornography, then then and they might even charge him with with the assault itself. And then there's a plea bargain, and uh, and 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 invariably there's a conviction. And by the way, um, no one ever gets nearly the time that Jerry Sandusky did. But Jerry Sandusky not only never confessed, never pled guilty, he never even allowed his lawyer to engage in plea bargain negotiations. Gosh. I mean, th that's completely. The opposite way, yeah, uh, guilty of person. the way any of these cases actually transpires. And, you know, we do a, a, an entire segment, entire episode of our podcast with the benefit of hindsight on what has happened since. And I mean, it's it is it's hours long because there's nothing in what has happened in the last 10 years that is consistent with. Jerry Sandusky being guilty. And there's a ton of things that have happened that are completely inconsistent right. with him being guilty. And it's, it's almost comical if it wasn't such so tragic. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible because I want, there's so much I want to talk about the big picture of this, the implications of this, and also you're just like how it's affected your life. But just for the sake of the people who don't have, who t even to this point are a little bit hazy on this, right. um, which is a lot of people. Sure. Can you kind of, you know, give the, you know, the elevator pitch for the, the, the most fundamental 
charges in this case and why they are so each of them is so flimsy starting with the guy who the very first accuser and his his background right and the, and like okay, well just the, like the, you I'm know. happy to do that the problem is that my, my burden of proof is so high right yeah. Um, oh, yeah. that it's it's impossible to do the the reader's digest version on right. each of these accusers. Right. But, but what I would what I would say is the I, I would go to the timeline. Okay. The the timeline is so important in most cases, but in this case, it's really important. Most people have no clue about the timeline. Most people, I think, think that all of a sudden, uh 10, which is the wrong number, um, 10 boys showed up at the police station and said, we've been getting sexually assaulted by Jerry Sandusky in a contemporaneous fashion, and we finally want to press charges. That's not what happened. It's not even close to what happened. This was a three-year grand jury investigation that went nowhere for two years because it only had one allegation number victim number one aaron fisher no one believed aaron they could not corroborate aaron there are two grand juries that didn't indict based upon his testimony which by the way is in retrospect kind of amazing right Mm -hmm. a grand jury will indict anybody and yet there there was no indictment in for two grand juries the grand jury that eventually indicted Jerry Sandusky never even heard from Aaron Fisher. I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, not quote me on that, but I don't think they ever even heard from Aaron Fisher. The, the case went nowhere until the Mike McQueary story falls in the laps of the prop prosecution. And most people who have any awareness of this story, they know the Mike McQueary story. They think they know the Mike McQueary story. Right. Mike McQueary was the former Penn state assistant coach who supposedly walked in on Jerry Sandusky in a sex act with a boy. Now that sounds like game, set, match, right? right. I, mean, oh, yeah. I, mean, that, I mean, that's why would McQuarrie lie? There's no other explanation for this. You know, this is, this makes, you know, this is, there's no need to even go further. And for the media, that's exactly where they stopped. Oh, oh we can't even possibly think of an explanation right. for uh, that story. And we don't want to go further because it's icky. And also because it's against our own self-interest because we really love this story and, uh, and no one wants to defend a pedophile. So we're just going to go with this. Well, I, that's where I began. My investigation was with the McQuarrie story. And if you look at the grand jury activity, the grand jury activity it's if you think about it, you know, as a heart rate. Okay, before before McQuarrie gets found at the like the last minute. I mean, they are about to drop the case. They're just about to drop the whole investigation. It's almost a flat line of activity in the grand jury. Then they find McQuarrie, and it's boom, 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 boom. boom. I mean, yeah. it explodes right. because now, now think about what investigators have. Okay, they have. The, the dual weapons, they have the, the, the two pillars of this case. They can now go to every single male who was ever a member of Jerry Zendowski's Second Mile Charity. And by the way, that's thousands of now adult men, all of whom came from at-risk backgrounds. So what does that mean? You got Money. thousands of male adults who are in, you know bad marriages, drug using, unemployment, 
you know, just bad lives in general, maybe bad people. I mean, you, you, this is a pool of, of crud. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now, and they have the names because they were, it was just all the matter of record that they were able to subpoena. So, so now they have the names of thousands of, of second mile men, not boys, men, and they can go to each of them. They can, they can say, Hey, we got uh, a kid named Aaron Fisher. I don't know if they used his name or not. But we got a kid who claims that Jerry Zanesky was sexually molesting him for two years. Um, and, and we've got Mike McQuarrie. You know, Mike, former, right. he's, a, he's a Penn State, he's not a former at this time. He's a Penn State trusted assistant to Joe Paterno at the mighty Penn State football program. We got a, a, a witness and we got an accuser who say that they are positive Jerry Zanesky is a pedophile. We need witnesses. We need victims. We need help putting this monster away. Now, think about that. If you're if you are one of those former second mile kids, right? And and remember, Jerry Sandusky was a goofy guy. He had boundary issues. He I'm, yeah. he absolutely touched people, boys and girls, on the knee and the shoulder, and gave hugs and that kind of thing. Joe Biden. So, Right. That's Joe, Joe Biden. Biden. He's Joe Biden. Right. That's he's literally Joe. Joe Biden. Right. He's Joe Biden. So, yeah. He's Joe Biden. And and so he's Joe Biden. And um, well, I've, I've always felt that Mr. Rogers was was Aaron Fisher away from having his career destroyed. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> poor uh, Fred. So um, but anyway, the point the point of this is that you you now have these this incredible weapon. And if you if you put yourself in the in the minds of those now men, right? And it, maybe one of the most amazing stats of this whole case is that investigators go and interview hundreds of these men, hundreds. And by the time of Jerry Sandusky's arrest, they can only scrounge up six guys that are willing to be accusers of Jerry Sandusky, and only two of those claim actual sex acts. So they can really only find two people and and um, which which is statistically unbelievable to me, because all that had to happen was that for some of these guys to figure out, put two and two together and go, huh, hmm, this could this could be interesting. Um, you know, if, if this goes somewhere and uh, there's payouts either from jerry or from penn state or from the second mile boy i could really use the money let me put my toe in this pond you see four of those guys that's exactly what they did mm -hmm. they put their toe in the pond they didn't even claim sex acts they claimed acts that in theory could have been misunderstandings or grooming or i'm not diminishing them if they were real i'm just saying they weren't clear sex acts. Right, right. Uh, they were, they were, they were stories that you could theoretically retreat from if you needed to. Right. Certainly, wouldn't, certainly wouldn't get the attention that it got either. Right. Yeah. And so, and it's interesting to point out that the second guy who claims sex, when he tells his story of being abused by Jerry Sandusky, this is all totally factual. You can look it up for yourself. He not only has a lawyer with him now think about this why does he have a lawyer he's not he, he's not yeah, being accused not of anything yourself he's yeah. not he he's a potential victim in this investigation he doesn't need a lawyer 
but he has a plaintiff's lawyer, not a criminal lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer with him, a man who will eventually make many millions of dollars from this case, from uh, from representing multiple accusers of Jerry Sandusky. So that's red flag number one. So in, in his mind, it's already there somewhere that there's yeah. money at the end of this rainbow because he's got a plaintiff's lawyer with him. Now, and I also, by the way, I know this kid's background and he was a shyster and his dad's a shyster. And this, this, this there's no question in my mind. He knew no. exactly what was going down here. And, yeah. and he wasn't a kid, by the way, he was, he was an adult. Uh, it's imp- important to keep pointing that out. But, but in the middle of this conversation with investigators and his lawyer, he's not giving them the goods. He's not telling them what they want. So the lawyer says to the investigators, can we turn off the recorder for a minute? And the investigators say, sure, except there's a mistake and they don't turn it off. Or, and so you actually hear, and this was presented at trial, you actually hear the lawyer and the investigator, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but this is, a, this is an accurate paraphrase. The lawyer says, hey, can we lie to Brett? Brett's his name. Can we lie to Brett and tell him that you have more accusers than you actually have right. so that he'll feel more comfortable telling us what really happened here? And the investigators say, sure, no problem. We do that all the time. And they go, okay, great. So let's go back and you know give this a try. So that's right. exactly what they do. Right. And and they go back and and they tell him uh, you know, lies about the evidence against Jerry Sandusky. And then all of a sudden, Brett comes forward with this story backing up, or, or I don't backing up, but similar story, although not really that similar, because it's again, it's gay porn written by a, a, a heterosexual male. Right. Um uh to to Aaron Fisher's story, but it, he gives them clear sex acts. And then just to finish the story off, um, I, this is just me, this is my interpretation, but I think you guys will will see where I'm coming from on this. So Aaron Fisher and his therapist write a book about the case. By the way, the therapist loses his state contract because of the ethical violation of writing a book about this case. Yeah. And it, it was the book that Aaron Fisher wrote that he didn't really write it, but his name is on it, along with his mother and his therapist. That book, I, I urge people to read that book if they're interested in, in understanding why Jerry Sandusky is clearly innocent, because this book is a joke. I mean, this book is a joke on so many levels. But one of the more interesting things when I read the book, and I read it way too late, because um, I kicked myself for not doing so sooner. The therapist tells a story about how just before the trial, at the trial, you know, outside of the courtroom, Aaron Fisher gets, um, I don't, I don't want to say confronted, but he, he gets addressed by a number, another one of the accusers. And the accuser comes up to Aaron Fisher. This is according to Mike Gillum, the therapist, writing in the book. And he, and he thinks this is all evidence of guilt in his distorted mind. That the, this other accuser is saying to Aaron, basically, hey, Aaron, this really did happen, right? You, you, this, Jerry really did do this to you, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to go up there and say that, right? And Aaron goes, yeah, yeah, I am. Well, we would later find out that Mike Gillum, the therapist, has a second client at this time who's involved in the trial. And it's Brett, the guy I just told you about, who told the story after investigators lied to him about 
how much evidence they have. I would submit that what was really happening there is that Brett is still not convinced. He wants to make absolutely sure this right. really happened before he goes and buries his old friend, Jerry Sandusky. And he's also probably a little bit afraid still that maybe this could blow up. Right. If, right. if it didn't really happen and Aaron gets yeah. exposed on the on the stand that he could end up looking like a complete jackass and he doesn't yeah. want to be hanging out there all by himself. So yeah. so this is how this happens. And the glue that keeps it all together are the plaintiff's attorneys and the money that's at the end of the rainbow, which was substantial. It was millions and millions of dollars for everybody involved. This right. is not a conspiracy. I am not, I, you know, I am an ardent anti-conspiracy theorist. However, I am someone who believes that people will pursue their own self-interest, especially yeah. when there's a lot of money at stake and they don't have a lot of money. And, yeah. and none of none of these guys did. Oh, it's, right. it's clear when you review this case, um, you know, uh, the and, and you and review your debunking of the case, um, how you know, my thoughts were when we talked to the to to Ilyich, we, my thoughts were initially like, well, there's usually smoke where there is fire if if there are genuine accusations, a la Bill Cosby, um, who you know, multiple accusations, multiple a la the Catholic priests. There's a lot of goofiness there that could occur. But if there are genuinely yeah. unbeknownst to each other accusations, that's a, that's a better sign than there than if there's only one. But in this case, as it seems to me, going through the ac the accusers one by one, they were all hunted, and in this process you describe, and then we can talk about the very first accusation because that's there's the McQueary one. The very first one is so flimsy, as you say, that no grand jury, the grand jury wouldn't bother with it because it was just so bad. It was just such an obvious cash grab, the one by Aaron Fisher. But then the McQueary thing sets things off onto another level and generates this entire like research mission to find more accusers, which, as you say, is very reasonably results in another handful of people who are interested in money and who have no evidence to offer and nothing but and nothing but some very, very nervous uh, invented stories. Um, so it's like you li you literally go down the list of how a guilty case would look and it misses on almost every single count. Um, and people just don't seem to know or care <laughs> that that's well, what. Well, because the media stopped reporting once the basically once Joe Paterno was fired. Yeah, they stopped yeah. reporting on the other side of the case. And that and that really was evident with regard to Mike McQuarrie. And um, because to me, the McQuarrie uh, allegation is the essence of the whole case. I yeah, mean, let's I, talk I, about that more because yeah. we, we kind of left that off. The McQuarrie allegation is that he on, on February 10, 9, February 9. Well, well, you got to go through the, the first date. So oh. you want me to do this? You want to, yeah, let's, yeah. Well, I'm going to leave it to the expert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, because it does get complicated, but yeah. this is important. Well, but this before we even get to the dates, it's just the, the essence of the accusation itself completely doesn't pass muster to me. He, he says, that he saw Sandusky with a boy in the shower. Mm -hmm. And then he that turns into he saw Sand. He heard them having sex. Yeah. He thought mm -hmm. slapping. Mm -hmm. But the, the yeah. sound he heard was slapping. And this equals butt sex in his mind 15 years later. But it that has absolutely no connection to reality. 
right? Like, walk us through what he claimed before the dates. Walk us through what he claimed he saw. Okay, because I can't. Again, the timeline is so important because, and you've already alluded to the time lapse, which is huge in this case. Huge, definitely. Okay, so here's what happens. This is I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. Uh, Please stop me if if it gets confusing. All right. So on, and and I'm not a conspiracy guy, but this is a weird, weird coincidence. (laughs) On the day after. Tom Corbett gets elected governor of Pennsylvania in November of 2010. The district attorney in the area, not the attorney general, the district attorney gets an email tip from a former police officer who is somebody who frequents Penn State message boards and says to them, hey, you might want to talk to Mike McQuarrie about Jerry Sandusky. He may have seen Jerry in the shower with a boy. That's exactly what it says, by the way. And I, I think you both know, especially back in that time, message boards on the internet were not exactly known for their restraint, right? Right. So he 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 didn't he didn't say, "Hey, you got to talk to Mike." He saw Jerry Sadusky butt fucking a, a boy. He said he yeah. saw him in the shower with a boy. All right. Well, this was an attorney general case because of a bizarre conflict of interest, and, and then ended up really. <laughs> hurting Jerry Sandusky. Um, and, and so it was not a district attorney case. Well, the district attorney forwards that to the attorney general's office. They then immediately um, contact Mike. Well, here, this is where things get really bizarre and quite interesting that we now know. I didn't know this at the time, but I, uh, but me and Don Van Atta of ESPN, ironically enough, were, were able to figure this all out. So Don Venata was ready to report on ESPN before he got censored. And there's a YouTube video which proves all this because I recorded my conversation with Don Venata of ESPN, where when Mike gets the call from investigators, he would later claim that he was thrilled that finally, 10 years later, someone was going to, uh, you know, talk to him about Jerry Sandusky. That was a lie. He was terrified that they were going to talk to him about pictures that he had sent of his penis through a Penn State phone to a woman not his wife. Mm-hmm. It should be noted. It should be noted that Mike is divorced as of now, um, uh, which is kind of amazing since he's supposed to be a hero. He got divorced after this case, um, and there's a whole other story about Mrs. McQuarrie that I don't think we'll have time for. But no, it's it's very obvious <laughs> that, Mrs., that Mrs. McQuarrie, former Mrs. McQuarrie, knows that Mike is a lying sack of crap. Well, anyway. I got to say, I want to just pa- really pause to interrupt that at my impression just uh, also is that not only is Jerry Sandusky innocent, but he's a better human being than literally anyone else involved in this case, like everyone. I mean, not leaving Joe so, Paterno It's so aside. funny you say that because the only there's only two people that I think better of today in this case than I did uh, 10 years ago. And by the way, that includes Joe Paterno. I think worse of Joe Paterno today than I did uh, 10 years ago, not because of anything to do with Jerry Sandusky right. assaulting kids, but for other reasons. Um, and one of them is Jerry Sandusky and the other is Franco Harris, NFL legend from the Pittsburgh Steelers, yeah. um, uh, who I've gotten to know exceedingly well. But I agree with you that Jerry Sandusky is probably the best. I know this sounds insane. It's Jerry crazy. Sandusky, Jerry Sandusky is the best human being uh, in the case. Um, right. uh, um, anyway, so so anyway, um, McQuarrie is terrified of why investigators are coming to see him. It's a very long, convoluted story as to how he eventually, two weeks later, ends up with a lawyer writing down this story related to what he supposedly 
witnessed 10 years earlier. Okay. Now he, he did not claim that he saw a, a rape. Uh, we don't even know for sure exactly what he did claim, but he never he, he never said he saw a rape. In fact, Jerry Sandusky was acquitted on that account, largely because Mike at trial said, I never said I saw a, a, a rape of a boy. But this is where the date and whether, you know, how long prior to all this is so incredibly important. And in, and the great one of the great ironies of my involvement in this is I would say my best and worst work in this entire case, deal with the date of the McQuarrie episode. And the actual date to me, and then we start our, our podcast with an entire episode devoted to the date. That's the title of the episode, the date. Because one, I didn't want to talk about child molestation right off the bat. And two, in my opinion, if you just understand the date issue, you know the story of Mike McQuarrie's claim is baloney. And here's, here's the, the very, as short as I can make a story with regard to the date. When the allegation comes out in November 2011, Mike has testified to the grand jury and the prosecution has put a rubber stamp on the date being March 1st of 2002. That was a Friday night in a preliminary hearing after the story breaks. The prosecution is very proud of that date because that date is the first night of spring break for Penn State in 2002. And they their implication is, Jerry had an expectation of privacy in these massive Penn State showers mm -hmm. um, and that therefore he could bring a, a kid into these massive showers. These are not individual showers. This is a football shower yeah. where there, there's no stalls. You know, there's plenty yeah. of room for, for everybody. And um, and that was why Jerry chose that night to 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 anally rape uh, this this boy who McQuarrie claimed was 10 years old, which was not true. Um, and, and so March 1st, 2002 was the day. Now the story that McQuarrie told never made any sense to me, especially when it came to Penn state's reaction. I, my BS detector was immediately at a nine or a 10 on the story itself. But then after Joe Paterno has died two months after this story breaks and before Jerry Sandusky's trial starts in the spring of the next year, which by the way, is a record time with no continuances and in, in and of itself is an, an outrage from a due process perspective, especially with 10 allegations against him. But before the trial, the prosecution very quietly and somewhat seep sheepishly says, um, hey, remember when we told you it was March 1st, 2002, that this thing happened, this incredibly important event occurred? Yeah, um, Mike was wrong about that. Um, it was actually not 2002. It was 2001. And it wasn't March. It was February. And it wasn't the first of the month. It was the ninth of the month. And the reason why we know that is because we have emails now. They didn't tell you where they got the emails. They got the emails from Gary Schultz, one of the accused Penn State administrators who voluntarily turned over those emails uh, from his own records. And so, um, so they find via this the emails of the meetings about McQuarrie's report that this had to have happened in their view. This is important. In their view, it had to happen the night of February 9th. Now, the reason why they say it had to happen the night, the night of February 9th, 2001, is that the meeting that Mike McQuarrie has with Joe Paterno is on the morning of Saturday, February 10th, 2001. And this is this is so key. This sounds mundane. This is so key to the story. So the prosecution now knows that meeting with Materno is February 10, 2001. The event has to be the night of the 9th 
Because if it's not the night of the ninth, Mike has no urgency in going to see Joe Paterno. Are you following me? Yeah, right. Words, he's right. got he he's not he he's supposedly witnessed a, a boy being raped by a former right. defensive coordinator. He it's, has so to have urgency. He has to so, rush to tell someone. Yeah. Right. And the best they can do if he sees Paterno on a on a Saturday morning, they know that people will accept, okay, he let Joe old Joe Paterno, the legendary coach, sleep Friday night, and yeah. he decides to call him first thing on Saturday morning. That that's in the realm of of an immediate report, right? Yeah. So, but it has to be February 9th. Has to be February 9th. Yeah. Otherwise, none of this story is plausible at all. Well, when I interviewed Jerry Sandosky the first time in prison alone for three and a half hours, I was still presuming he was a pedophile. Um, but there was one thing I was more certain of than anything else in the entire interview. And that was Jerry Sandusky knows that February 9th date is still wrong. And this blew my mind. I mean, literally, I could not comprehend because I'm still thinking the prosecution is credible. And I'm thinking there's no way the prosecution got this wrong twice. There's no way. And if they had, the defense would have done something about it. How is this possible? So I questioned Jerry further about it. And you know, he was kind of groggy because he'd been in, in you know, uh, self-isolated. Now he would have been isolated and in, in solitary confinement. And, you know, obviously his whole world has been destroyed. And so I'm, I'm thinking he must just be mistaken. But I did a cursory investigation. And one of the reasons why he knew February 9th could not be the date, which is a Friday. February 9th is a Friday. He knew that on the day that this episode allegedly occurred, because Penn State had asked him about it back 10 years prior, he knew the boy that he was with, who was, by the way, almost 14 years old, kid by the name of Alan Myers, kid who Jerry thought of as a son. And he knew on that day he had spent the whole day with Alan Myers. That they, He knew that. And he knew there was no way he would have ever taken Alan Myers out of school. And so in his mind, February 9th didn't make any sense. So I, I, am, I got home from this interview, and I mean, my brain is completely fried. I, I had left my laptop at LAX. I had the, the recording device I had snuck into the prison, uh, got closed shut because I was so afraid of them finding me out. Uh, I mean, it was my, my brain was completely, I was, you know, the, the Today Show wanted to know when I was going to come on with them to, to break the story of the interview. I mean, I had a lot going on, but I called Alan Myers school that where he was going to school back in 2001. And I, I got the school secretary to find a calendar and the school secretary said, no, we had school on February 9th. 2001. Now, again, at this point, I'm presuming Jerry is a pedophile and I'm thinking everything he's telling me is possibly a lie. So I'm not having nearly the faith in what he's telling me that I would have if he told it to me today. Right. Because because mm. I've, I've been on both sides of the fence now and I realize there's no criminal mastermind and the guy is the most honest person maybe I've ever met in my life. So he so I'm, I'm thinking, boy, that's really weird. Is Jerry maybe trying to manipulate me by concocting a story as to who this boy in the shower, victim number two, was? I didn't know what to make of it. And I dropped it, which was the biggest mistake I have made in the whole investigation. Because if I had just kept going 
and followed my instincts that Jerry knew that that date was wrong. I could have gone on the Today Show and I might have been able to break the case wide open because I now know February 9th was not the day. In fact, it wasn't February 8th. It wasn't February 7th. It was actually December 29th of the year before, six weeks, six weeks prior to the meeting with Paterno. Mike McQuery waited six weeks before he reported this alleged what is now perceived to be a rape because, and the reason why he waited six weeks is because he didn't see a rape. He didn't witness a rape. He didn't hear a rape. He saw Jerry Sandusky in a shower with a boy, which he thought was inappropriate. And it was only at that moment that he had the self-interest to go report it. And why did he have the self-interest to go report it? Because in the morning of February 9th, the day before he goes to see Joe, goes to see Joe Paterno in the newspaper that day is the news that Kenny Jackson has left the Penn State Nittany Lions as the wide receivers coach to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that means the wide receivers coaching job is open. That's the job Mike McQuarrie wants. And that's why on that Saturday morning of February 10th, he decides to go see Joe Paterno. Not because the night before he had witnessed some sort of right. sexual assault. Right. Yeah. Right. And he wants, so he, he wants, he wants a job. Right. And around this time, Jerry Sandusky is reportedly, I, I, I don't know at the timeline matches up. He's almost the Virginia Cavaliers. Head That's coach. a really important part of the story. And, and, and really important. I mean, yeah. so, so, and this is all, it's incredible. The, the elements of the perfect storm here. Yeah. So, but, um, I, yeah, so, I know you. So yeah, on but, February, on December 29th, Actually, it was on, on December 30th. On December 30th, part of how we piece this all together is that there's a newspaper article in the local paper from December 31st. Remember, you know, newspapers are delayed a day, right, from the news. So on December 31st of 2000, there's an article in the local paper about Jerry Sandusky um, hosting a book signing in State College. And finding out on that day that he did not get the Virginia head coaching job, which he had been handed a contract for. He thought he was going to be the next head coach of the University of Virginia. He had been retired at Penn State for a year, and he was still a hot coaching commodity. Well, Jerry had told me when he said that he didn't think February 9th was the date, he had said, this is amazing to me that the defense never made a any apparent issue out of this, or I'm sure they were just so overwhelmed and they're so stupid. They, they did the same thing I did, but Jerry told me he had associated the event that McQuery witnessed with his book coming out and with the head coaching job at the university of Virginia. Well, on the very same day, both those things happened. his book signing, finding out about the Virginia head coaching job. And it turns out that the day before, on December 29th, Jerry Sandusky had started his day in Washington, PA, where he grew up, where there was another book signing that's on the other side of Pennsylvania. And this is obviously Christmas vacation. So Alan Myers did not have school. So Alan Myers was with him the whole day. They, fl- they drive from Washington, PA to State College, Pennsylvania. They have a workout. They take a shower, which was not unusual in in that culture at that time. Allen is almost 14 years old. He's two and a half years away from winning a varsity letter on his high school football team. And it just so happens that Mike McQuarrie came by at that exact moment, 
heard slapping sounds supposedly, and then through a foggy mirror by his own testimony for two or three seconds, two or three seconds, supposedly sees Jerry Sandusky roughhousing with a boy. Uh, and they felt that that was inappropriate. By the way, I have no problem with Mike McQuarrie thinking that's inappropriate. Yeah, I, that's, I would too. But, yeah, but that's but that's not but that's not rape. That's not a sexual yeah. assault. That's not evidence that this guy is a serial pedophile. And that's why nothing was made of it back in two thousand one when McQuarrie comes to Joe Paterno because all McQuarrie was doing was passing along the report of something that made him uncomfortable. That was it. And it, yeah. it wasn't until 10 years later when investigators manipulate McQuarrie into taking, you know, a, a minor, uh, you know, I don't even call it a brush fire and turning into a five alarm fire that um, that all hell breaks loose. And that's why the administrators got so screwed, because the administrators were told 10 years earlier that this was just goofing around with a boy in a shower. And so that's how they responded to it. Well, then. In 10 years, the grand jury presentment comes out and it's anal rape. Yeah. And and these administrators are completely blindsided and the whole world thinks they covered up the rape of a former assistant coach, which doesn't even make any goddamn sense. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, so... So that's the I know that's long and involved. No, I mean it's it's so and and, and let to clarify also Aaron Myers, the the Alan boy Myers. who Alan. Alan Myers, supposed the boy who was supposedly raped. Um, Jerry Sandusky went to his wedding later. He became a Marine sergeant. Uh, mm -hmm. They became they were all they were close family friends until I guess he smelled the money bags too. Well, uh, let what, me, well, I'll give you the story on Alan Myers. So uh, Alan, this is what happens after this shower episode where he got brutally where, anally raped. Where he according. supposedly got anally raped. Um, this is a heterosexual man who is married with a child. Um, after this episode by a man with he, no balls, brutally raped by a man with no balls. Right, right. right. <laughs> and so, so here's Alan Myers timeline after this episode. Um, he, as I told you, he plays high school football as a, at his senior high school football game. He doesn't have a dad. So guess who stands in as his dad at his senior high school football game? Jerry Sandusky. Jerry Sandusky. Uh, so, so then, so then he, in his senior graduation, the following spring, he asks, Jerry Sandusky to speak at his graduation, which Jerry Sandusky does. Jerry Sandusky is the, I, I guess you would call the, the commencement speaker at, at Alan Myers graduation. During this time period, Alan Myers uh, is deciding what he's going to do with himself. He is coaching youth football and he has an, as a, as a coach that coaches with him. Guess who that is? Jerry Sandusky. Um, no, Jerry Sandusky. Yeah, Jerry Sandusky. There's a picture in the local paper of their their team. The two of them are coaching this youth football team together. So if Alan Myers has really been raped, he's enabling his rapist to get for further victims. Although, by the way, nobody else in that picture ever you know made an allegation against Jerry Sandusky. Oddly enough. So um, and then uh, Alan Myers decides uh, he's going to go to school at Penn State. And guess who he, he lives with for three months while he's starting his studies at Penn State? The Sanduskies. He lives at the Sandusky house with a whole bunch of other people, by the way. The Sandusky house is, is jammed. They've got multiple uh, adopted kids and other people living with them. But Alan lives with the Sanduskies for three months. Then he goes into the Marines. 
where he becomes a sergeant. So it's not like this guy's a wallflower who's, you know, the victim of Stockholm syndrome and is sub- subjugated right. by his, 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 uh, his abuser and isn't a strong enough guy to stand up for himself. Um, and, uh, and so he gets married and in his Marine uniform, uh, at his wedding, he invites, oddly enough, uh, Jerry and, and Dottie Sandusky to the wedding and takes a photograph arm in arm with Jerry Sandusky in his Marine uniform. When Jerry Sandusky's mother dies, his mother, not his wife, his mother, who Alan, I can't, you know, probably didn't know that all that well. Alan drives 10 and a half hours at least, although Alan claimed to be more than that. So maybe he was a slow driver. Um, you know, a ridiculous amount of time back and forth from his Marine barracks to yeah. go to the funeral of Jerry Sandusky's mother. Well, it's hard to drive when your butt is sore from being raped 10 years ago. So, <laughs> so true. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the reality, and then, and then let's, let's not forget the most important thing. So ironically enough on the day that Jerry Sandusky is, or the uh, Joe Paterno would end up getting fired. I mean, imagine all this happened, all this happened over this episode. Had anyone known at the time that, that during the, the fiasco that was the Joe Paterno and Grand Spaniard firing and the so-called riot that ensued after that, earlier that day, Alan Myers had voluntarily come into the offices of Jerry Sandusky's defense attorney, Joe Amendola. Joe Amendola wasn't even prepared for him, didn't even have an investigator to take his statement. He comes into that office with his mother, who knew Jerry Sandusky very well, and waits there for Joe to get an investigator, an FBI-trained former police officer, to take a statement in which Alan says, I'm the guy who was in the shower with Jerry when Mike McQuarrie saw us. Mike McQuarrie is not telling the truth. And then he, and, he, and he provides two details that only the kid in the shower could possibly know. And I mean, and, and I went on the Today Show trying to wave that statement on the air live and NBC wouldn't even let me say his name. And we had to tape the whole thing. We had to bring in Matt Lauer an hour early because I, they, they were afraid I was going to say his name on live television. I think they even ridiculously blurred out the statement it's as if anyone was going to use like some sort of super uh, space equipment to, to figure out you know, what the statement said. Um, I, I did my best to try to describe the statement without breaking the rules that NBC, the shackles that NBC had put on me. But not one media outlet, not one media outlet even bothered to call and ask me about the statement that I waved on live national television in front of six million people. It's just it, 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 the whole thing is just unbelievable. It's and it really I'll tell you what, all of this prepared me tremendously for covid uh-huh. because, well, th- because, yeah, because it's all the same. It's all the same thing. It's yeah. all once they have a narrative, it's over. We don't want to hear playbook, anything else. Same playbook. Yep. Same playbook. Yeah. Same well, playbook. Uh, it's the, and everything that happened within COVID, uh, you know, including the George Floyd and the the summer of love 2020. Uh, it, it really is chilling to <laughs> explore this story and, and realize just how, I mean, you know, like I think Glenn, you could say the same thing maybe, but like, you know, when I just heard, when I heard that there's a revisionism going on about Jerry Sandusky, even though I'm so, you know, as you could tell, built skeptical in in general about everything related to the media. My initial instinct is, oh, this is probably some conspiracy bullshit, right? Someone's doing some sort of contrarian 
uh, kind of like Michael Jackson, which I think that I don't know what your take is on Michael Jackson. Uh, what, what is your take on Michael Jackson? <laughs> well, are you guilty or not guilty? <laughs> when, when, when I was on KFI, I presumed he was guilty and I covered the trial from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, boy, there's really not much evidence there. And the while I was not happy with the verdict from what I thought was a justice standpoint, I understood it from a lack of evidence perspective. But then when the HBO documentary came or film, I won't even call it a documentary when the HBO film leaving Neverland came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got very, very, well, not, not as deeply involved in that as I got with Sandusky, but close. Um, I have to tell you, Michael Jackson is also innocent. And I, wow. I, 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 I am very confident of that. Um, and I could give you the thumbnail sketch on why I'm positive of that. But I, I would just say this, um, if Michael Jackson was guilty uh, with all the money that is uh, potentially at stake for accusers, we would have more than four men on record uh, claiming that they had been sexually abused right. by by Michael Jackson, especially after le- the leaving Neverland. I'm a big believer that you find out the truth long after something happens. Leaving Neverland was a complete disaster because leaving Neverland, much like the Sandusky case, was was predicated on the notion that is, well, if we get this out there, we're going to get bombarded with new accusers, with fresh stories and real evidence. And they haven't gotten one, not one. And the reason they haven't gotten one, and I can assure you that the two in leaving Neverland, they are as big of frauds as anybody in the Sandusky case, maybe more so. And I I personally believe that Wade Robson, who is the most prominent of those two accusers in the Leaving Neverland case, was inspired by the Sandusky case. If you look at the timeline, Interesting. Uh, it's, it is, and it, even some of what he says, uh, it's very obvious to me that he uh, realized that this was, it was something that could be very beneficial for him financially. But unlike the Sandusky case, Michael Jackson's side has a heck of a lot of money and really yeah. good lawyers. Yeah. And and a fan base and a fan base that's incredible. If it's Joe worldwide. Paterno had this had the loyalty, if his fans were as willing to stand up for him as Michael Jackson's fans are willing to stand up on a very substantive basis for Michael Jackson, Joe Paterno's statue would still be up. The field at Penn State would be named for him. Uh, he would have no scandal attached to his name whatsoever. But that's not the world we live in. So I know it's shocking. I'm I'm shocked to even have come to that conclusion. But Michael Jackson, while weird, and let's be clear, he was the most famous man in the world and one of the yeah. richest men in the world. Yeah, that's going to make you weird. I, I believe that celebrity to that level is a disease. And he had a disease of celebrity, but it killed him. And part of the way it killed him was through these allegations that were not based in truth. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling about Michael Jackson case is, is, is exactly where it would make both sides really pissed off at me, both the innocent and the guilty. Um, I, I think that, but I don't want to get into that cause that's not what this is, uh, episode <laughs> yeah, is about. No, no worries. No, yeah. but it's, but I'm, I'm just trying to like, you know, I'm trying to place this in the bigger picture and, um, and especially with you, John, um, now, first of all, let's try to play God for a moment. 
I mean, before we kind of close the case, what do you think, like, why did this happen to Jerry Sandusky? I mean, what is it, what hap? what is it that, what did he do? I can think of some things that he did that earned him this, not earned him, but that led to this disaster. Yeah. Like a PE teacher, like a PE teacher that you might have where you're like, ah, that guy's just a little different. You know, he might put his hand on your shoulder. I could see that reputation being there for the taking whenever it was the most opportune time to make that into something much bigger. There are people who are touchy feely. There are people who are over affectionate um, for what others are comfortable with. As you said, boundary issues, like especially at his generation. Uh, There are people who he clearly had an interest. I mean, you know, a Christian. um, And I don't think the Christian thing is to be disregarded because I think it's part of it. Like if you're going to start a fucking charity for a bunch of underprivileged players and stuff, that means you like being around a bunch of kids you just that's is that's not bad that's just a fact like that's just what you you're you're both you and your wife are the are like super christian missionary types who are who glut who are gluttons of good deeds and all of this is mixed up with the human experience like every element of it if you hated kids you wouldn't have a bunch of foster kids in your home all the time I know you have to have foster kids because you don't have balls, but besides that, and you, which means you can't have sex, but what's besides that, like there's all this going on. And I'm just curious how you, as someone who's probably spent more time with him and more thoughtfully than any one other human being but his wife, who doesn't seem the most thoughtful woman in the world, like how do you, who is this guy for you? Well, for the, it's a great question. For the record, we, we did an entire episode of our podcast with the benefit of hindsight on what I think really happened. And I get, and okay. I'm the only person I am the only, to me, it should go more to my credibility than almost anything. Nobody on the other side will even try to tell a story about what happened here because mm-hmm. you can't, because you're going to run into dead ends at, at every turn. There's, there, there is, there, there is no logical story to be told on the other side of this because none of it makes, you can't make sense of the full totality of the evidence and the narrative without making some massive leaps. So no one even tries. I have not only tried, but I believe that I have cracked the case and and I believe that I know exactly what happened here. And and here's the short version of this. I believe that Jerry Sandusky got caught in a time warp. I believe that he grew up in a different generation. I believe that he grew up uh, in a rec home, by the way, where nudity was everywhere. It was not a big deal. I believe that he really loved kids. I believe that he was very Christian. I believe that for whatever reason, he and his wife could not have children. That's why they had many foster kids and adopted kids. I believe that he thought that when he left Penn State to go full-time with the Second Mile Charity, that he was making the right decision for the good of humanity and that he didn't realize because he's so naive that once he left Penn state and no longer had the moniker of not only being Penn state's defensive coordinator, but this is really important. He was presumed to be Joe Paterno's heir apparent. Right. And that gave him huge status in the community as, Oh wow, boy, you know, you gotta be nice to Jerry because he's going to end up taking over for Joe Paterno one day. Well, once that's gone, and he's dealing with kids who have a, a memory of, what, two or three weeks of what history is. I mean, Aaron Fisher, let's take this out of the theoretical and into the practical. Aaron Fisher was 
like five or six years old when Jerry Sandusky last coached a football game. One of the most ridiculous parts of the narrative on the other side is, oh, that Sandusky was a god to these kids, and that's why they were willing to engage in sex acts with him without telling anybody, even though they were heterosexual boys, which is preposterous on its face, but it's particularly preposterous when Jerry's a nobody now. He's the, a goofy guy who runs a charity who doesn't even who doesn't even drive a nice car. So to the kids of this era who are rapidly changing and he's not even realizing it, they don't have any respect for him. And the and he's pushing buttons that used to work with kids in a previous generation back when he was somebody And now when he's a nobody and kids are changing radically, those buttons aren't working. And I think he, in the case of Aaron Fisher and a couple of other guys, I think he panicked a little bit Mm -hmm. where he, he thought that the only way to save these kids was to put a full court press on where not just physically, but just from every perspective that the boundary lines got obliterated where he's going to their to their school and right. you know things that in in retrospect after an allegation is made look like bum 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 this yeah. is him uh, stalking or grooming or or whatever he's doing when in fact all he's really doing is he's really concerned about this kid Aaron Fisher who's starting to screw up in school and he doesn't know what to do to try to help him and you know he comes from this horrible background in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. The armpit a whore mom. His whore. His mom is an absolute trashy whore. I heard the. I heard yeah. you describing his yeah. mom. Well, but I don't you, know if I've said whore, but I mean she might. You didn't say be. whore. Whore is but, my word. I mean she's okay, just the worst. But, she's like the lowest of the low. Yeah, like, she and, and she on she every faci- level. She facilitated a lot of this. Yeah, and 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 you know and and if you want to get into theories? Here's what I think happened. I think Aaron, who was having sex with girls at a very very young age very young age. Um, I think Aaron was sexually abused by his stepdad, Eric Daniels, who was later charged uh, with a, and convicted, but guilty to a hundred counts uh, related to child molestation, including molestation to his own kids, although not to Aaron. I have an interview with Aaron Fisher's ex-wife saying that she knows Aaron was sexually abused by the stepdad. He's she heard him talk about it. She heard his mom talk about it, but she never heard them talk about anything regarding abuse by Jerry Sandusky. So I believe that he took the abuse that came from Eric from Eric Daniels. And I believe he transferred it onto Jerry Sandusky when manipulated to do so by his therapist, Mike Gillum, who is a quack, a complete quack. And it should be pointed out, Aaron denied ever being abused by Jerry Sandusky many, many times before Gillum finally got him to say the word yes. Not any specifics, just yes, I I was sexually abused by Jerry Sandusky. I think Aaron wanted Jerry out of his life because I think he thought Jerry was not just a pain in the ass on his grades, but I think he was also a a uh, an obstacle to getting girls. A supervisor, like instance, yeah. Well, I mean, for instance... Again, taking this out of the theoretical into the practical, we have an interview with Aaron Fisher's neighbor. Maybe the most important interview I did in this whole damn case. Josh Fravel is his name. Uh, Fravel uh, uh, is his last name. John and, and Brett Favre. Right. <laughs> and and he um and I mean to say he's a neighbor. I mean this is welfare housing. 
So they're basically living in the same mm-hmm. building. I mean, they have, they have, you know, plywood between them. They know everything that's going on in each other's apartment. And uh, he witnessed what happened on the day that Aaron first told his mom that Jerry Sandusky makes him feel uncomfortable and, and, and facilitated Dawn, his mom, making a claim to the school, not to the police, not to Penn State, but to the high school where Jerry Sandusky was a volunteer assistant football coach uh, um, at the time. And, and so what he says is that Aaron wanted to go out with his friends that night. Dawn wanted to go drinking and Dawn wanted him to be supervised by Jerry. And Aaron was trying to get out of being babysat by Jerry. And so he tells his mom, well, Jerry makes me feel uncomfortable. And, um, and then they go inside, they have this mysterious conversation. Um, uh, Dawn comes out according to Josh smoking one of her cigarettes. And the first thing she says to Josh is I'm going to own that motherfucker's house. That's the first thing she says. (laughs) I'm going to own that motherfucker's house. Now, you know, we get, there's all sorts of potential theories here. I have read, and I'm not an expert on this, but I have read that there is a phenomenon with teenage boys uh, and father figures that they can sometimes get sexually aroused um, by contact. And I have a theory, this is purely a theory, that it dovetails with something that his ex-wife told me. I think that it's possible that when Aaron and Jerry were goofing around and wrestling and that kind of thing, that Aaron may have gotten a stray erection mm-hmm. and then it freaked him out that he thought, because he talked to his, his, his ex-wife about fearing that he was gay and mm. that, and that I think that mm-hmm. that might have been the, the, the current, the, the, the seed, the kernel, if you will, of Jerry makes me feel uncomfortable. And uh, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. No, it's so it's 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 all perfectly within the realm of all the factors you're paint you're describing here. The mother, the fact that this kid was you know fucking left and right. The the stepfather who abused the kid's sister for sure. You're assuming he also abused Aaron Fisher. And I'm going by I'm going by uh, the statement of the wife. Who has right. witnessed conversations with, which I think is a pretty good source. Yeah, pretty good source. So he's dealt with an ab- with an abusive stepfather, which the most important thing about an abusive stepfather is not the abusive stepfather; it's the mother. Because if you're if you're if your mom brought a fucking this dude into your house, hey, that's that's a huge that's a huge that's a huge deal for any for any boy to begin with. But then she brought a dude into your house is also being abusive. Like that's just, that creates, that created Aaron, a much lesser version of that probably is what created Aaron Hernandez. We just talked about Aaron Hernandez in our last episode. Uh, like, like that is a, that is a ball of trouble. Getting an erection while you're, while you're being wrestled, when you're a horny, who's fucking 10 times a day, a little weird little kid, ghetto kid, you're getting an erection while someone, while somebody, while there's human contact is perfectly within the realm of any kind of possibility. Right. Like that's not even a stretch. He doesn't even have to be gay for that to happen. That can, like, well, just, I understand that. I'm not saying he's yeah. gay. I'm saying, no. I'm just saying like sixty percent of his time he's got an erection. So well, he probably he's, thought well, that. Let, you know? my, my, <laughs> let me let me let me let me just put a little more uh, meat on that. Do you right. poor term bone? Um, uh, <laughs> Slather um, it. No, 
I, I spoke with one of Aaron's best friends um, who was who was a key witness on a lot of levels. This kid was in a car accident with Aaron where Aaron almost killed him um, and almost killed himself. By the way, it was a car that was given to him by Jerry Sandusky that that Mike Gillum, the therapist in his book, actually laughably claims Jerry set up to kill Aaron Fisher, uh, which is just insane. But when I spoke to this kid, there were a couple of things that were really important. And I spoke to his dad, too. At trial, one of the very few things that Aaron tries to come up with to justify evidence that he was abused by Jerry is that he was wetting the bed when he first started seeing Jerry on a regular basis, which would have been at 11 or 12 years old, which is obviously very, very late to be wetting the bed. Well, the dad told me no way shape or form. Aaron stayed over at their house all the time and he wet the bed years before he ever met Jerry Sandusky, which by the way, would have matched the timeline of Eric Daniels abusing him. So you see, this is the transference mm. here. So yeah. he's being abused at home by Eric Daniels. He's escaping to the friend's house. He's wetting the bed. Uh, and then later he uses that story to as as some semblance of evidence against Jerry Sandusky. But then also the kid told me that when they, uh, this is Aaron's friend, that when they would stay over together, this was when they were like, when Aaron was like 10, 11, 12 years old, this, that Aaron would masturbate with him right there while mm-hmm. they were like sleeping next to each other. Uh, one, of, one of those friends. Uh, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so this is a guy who, clearly was messed up and clearly hypersexualized. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, hypersexual. I mean, everyone I spoke to him that knew him, hypersexuality was, was one of the first things they always said to me. Um, and by the way, I've spoken to other members of his family that don't believe the story. Close, close relatives of his, friends, best friends. <coughs> And this is years later after it's been sanctified by a court and by the media. Aaron Fisher, Aaron Fisher was not telling the truth. And you know how, you know, Aaron Fisher's not telling the truth when the prosecutors did their only interview about the case for HBO, Armin Katayan. This is amazing. There's no, if you understand the case, you understand the timeline. Aaron Fisher has to be the star. He's the only witness for two years. He's everything. He's victim number one. They don't even mention Aaron's name in the interview. Mm. They replace him as the star with victim number four, the guy I told you about who had the tape that was mistakenly recorded uh, with his lawyer and the investigators conspiring to lie to him. The, 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 the prosecutors themselves were uncomfortable with Aaron Fisher as their star. Right. And, and that's you, you can't do that in a case like this because the it's cumulative. Every one leads to the next one. And one of the legally, one of the things that bothers me most about this case, and I've spoken to Michael Jackson's attorney, Tom Mesero, about this, and he's as baffled as I am, is how in the world it's OK legally. For someone to face 10 different allegations from eight different men at the same time when inherently the jury is going to give each one of those allegations the credibility of the totality of all of them. In other words, 
They don't stand on their own. They're mm-hmm. all propping each other up. And, and I mean, and that, that legally should not be allowed because you get this. And I can't tell you how many, how many people to, to this day, the number one reason they think Jerry Sandusky is guilty is not all those people could be lying. Well, that's how many people have claimed to have had encounters with Bigfoot. <laughs> Thousands of people have, they can't all be lying. Can they? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think they probably are uh, either that or they're badly mistaken. I mean, I, I mean, so, and in this case, there were millions and millions of dollars at stake for seeing Bigfoot. And I mean, and so I, you know, you know, you do a great job in the in 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 your longer forms work about this, including in the in, in the, with the benefit of hindsight. You do a good job of really dressing down each of the accusations. I mean, the 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 thing I always look for is are these accusers aware of each other? I mean, like the timeline of the accusations is a big factor because if they happen independently, if they're independent testimonies that come out of without any knowledge of each other, that is way more credible than ones where you can track a very obvious and sinister uh, motivation uh, of self-interest and also grown-ups going and basically prodding them. I mean, we all know about it. it's, it's a simple mass, even if it wasn't for money, mass hysteria alone uh, would make it possible, as in that one case with the with the cult. I forget what it was. The case that everyone uh, everyone had decided the, Ma- the they McMartin were, preschool case. The, the preschool case, exactly. Like it's even at that level, it's easy to do. But when you and you you okay. you drown it with all this money and and well, uh, can I let me let me address you just said something again, maybe inadvertently that's really important. Nothing I say is inadvertent. Okay, okay, I'm it's not inadvertent. Saying, yeah. But the 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 issue of the accusers knowing each other. Yeah, this is really. This is where things get pretty sinister. Um, other than Aaron Fisher, everybody at trial had a buddy in this case. Everybody. So, and, and, and when you break it, you know, there were 10 allegations at trial, which sounds like a ton, but let me break it down. And it's really not that much. Of the 10, two did not exist. They did not, no, there, were, there were no human beings attached to them. They were completely lacking in credibility. No witnesses, no accusers. Uh, that was victims number two and victim number eight. Those people did not exist. So now we're down to eight. And uh, I already told you that before trial, there were only two of the six human beings who claimed actual sex acts. Well, when you break it down as far as whoever who everybody knew, victim number four, five, six, and seven are not just friends. They're pictured together in Jerry Sandusky's book, Touched, which the prosecution, which the prosecution claimed was a an attempt by him, I guess, either consciously or subconsciously to confess. Now, if I I did it, kind of. Yeah, right, right. The if I did it type of thing. They call it touched. I know, which which, of course. okay, but then where's the confession? Where's the plea bargain? Where's where? Where's, you know. There, there's nothing like that, and it's just uh, highly unfortunate. No, but it's just like this guy's the this guy's like the Chauncey Gardner, but uh, like bizarro Chauncey Gardner, who's just walking into the most, the most, the most ups- like it. It blows my mind that he everything he did helplessly put him into this position, and then all he could do at the end was just to be bewildered and say, "Uh, well, I did." We, I did like their company, and uh, I know I didn't rape them with my non-existent balls. Uh, it's so crazy. I mean, okay. okay. But let me – can I just finish yeah, on, continue, the, on yeah, the four? Because the the, this is really important. Okay, so so let's go with the prosecution's theory. The prosecution's theory is that Jerry puts the, them in his book, 
He's a criminal mastermind, but he puts four of his most prominent accusers, all whom are in the same age, right? So he's very busy during the time period in which he's abusing these four. By the way, I've spoken. There's another kid in the picture who was not an accuser. And I've told him, boy, you gave up a lot of money to not being an accuser, uh, which he was very cool about. Uh, but, but so oddly, he didn't he didn't abuse everybody in the picture. He just mm-hmm. abused those four. So so this supposed confession that doesn't result in a plea bargain or any sort of confession, not, nothing like that. So I don't know why Jerry is doing this. He's a he's a criminal mastermind, but he's putting four of his most prominent accusers in a book together. And by the way, this is where things get really, in my mind, important. Let's let's game plan this out. So let's say he had been abusing those four guys. You don't think that at least one, if not all four of them, when that book comes out, are going to scream bloody murder, that their name and photograph is in a book with the guy who's sexually molesting them? Yet none of that happened. No parent complained. No one. I've spoken to the guy who co-wrote the book. I've spoken to the guy who put the picture in the book. There was nothing remotely unusual about it. There was no controversy about it. There was nothing. Here's what really happened. Right. Let's go into the real world. In the real world, one of those four is later known as victim number six, a guy who, frankly, his testimony at trial sounds like he's a defense a witness. He says nothing happened to him. Nothing. Hmm. This hurt him greatly during the settlement phase where he got almost no money, just a little bit over a million dollars, because he said nothing happened to him. The DA at the time investigated it, found the allegation to be unfounded. There were no charges. Well, number six gets told by Sarah Ganim, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter in this case. She wins the Pulitzer Prize for this whole thing. She's a total fraud. She tells the mom of victim number six, there are, we have text messages to prove this, that, that, hey, the authorities are about to drop the case. If you want this thing to go forward, you really need to find some more accusers. And um, and guess what happens? Shockingly, I know this is shocking yeah. that that victims all of a sudden victims number four, five, and seven who are also in that picture together, and um, and and are buddy buddy in, in individually, uh, including by the way, two of those guys go on on gambling trips together with their Penn State Penn, uh, settlement money. Um, it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden four. You take that that four right there is the bulk of the case at trial. Those four, by the way, are four of the six at arrest. You blow them out and no one's even believing the story. But yeah. this ha- this happened. And, and then, um, you know, the, the two accusers that come forward after arrest, the, the prosecution's whole theory was, well, our, our case sucks right now. I'm paraphrasing, but there are memos that that back me up on this. This is this is this is legitimate. Their 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 theory of the case is our case sucks right now, but once we arrest Jerry Sandusky and this thing gets huge publicity, and boy did it ever, we are going to get bombarded with so many accusers with good stories and no credibility issues and real evidence that this won't be a problem. That I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's. That's Anthony Sassano put that in a memo, uh, who was the lead detective on this. And what ends up happening? Victims number nine and number 10, who they add after the arrest and the nuclear explosion in the media, are the biggest bunch of garbage in the entire case. 
I believe they added them only because they didn't want the embarrassment of not having any of the post-arrest accusers be seen as worthy of going to trial. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. In other words, it would have been an embarrassment. It's not a, it's not a coincidence that they picked two. Yeah. Two two's the right number, right? If you if you're if you're just trying to save face, you pick two multiple. of the garbage. It's right? multiple. It's multiple. You can say it's yeah. multiple. And, and so you pick two and you throw that in to the original case, and then you just hope that that no one's going to be able to believe that all these guys are lying. And if they all tell the stories on the stand, and let's be clear, no cameras in the courtroom in Pennsylvania. The media kept them anonymous, right? So yeah. So what they're being asked to do is not that difficult. They are being asked to go into a room with a couple hundred people that they don't know. Their names are not going to be used. And they get incredibly soft questioning from the prosecution, absurdly soft questioning from a defense that was overwhelmed and not prepared for any of this. And they're going to get paid millions of dollars once Jerry goes down. And that's exactly what happened here. So... Why did he retire in 1998, in your opinion, suddenly? Well, that's not, that's the perception that's not really true. Oh, okay. Okay. So in 1998, he announces that he's going to retire, not that year, going to retire the next year. Mm-hmm. Now, now, back when this was evidence of Joe Paterno somehow enabling a cover-up because of the 1998 episode, which occurred in the spring that happened with victim number six that I alluded to that he said nothing happened and the DA determined it to be unfounded. Um, I, I, I always pose this question to the critics of Joe Paterno who, who thought that somehow this was evidence of a cover-up. So you do know that football is played in the fall, right? And you do know that if you're going to get rid of somebody one, there's plenty of time to get rid of somebody from the spring to the fall if you if you're if someone's a freaking pedophile or right. you think that they are. But the last thing you're going to do is keep them on for two more football seasons. Totally. There's no way you don't. That's not an indication of a forced retirement. Getting two new two full seasons as a lame duck defensive coordinator. But why did he retire? Okay, he retired because he decided one or he realized he was not going to be Joe Paterno's replacement because Paterno had made it clear he wasn't going to retire. It was mm-hmm. obvious that Paterno was in for the long haul. You know, there becomes a point in in any the life of any legend where do you retire when you lose a step or are you just going to retire when you die, right? Yeah. And and Paterno had made it clear I ain't retiring until I die. Right. And and so um, at that point, Jerry knew he wasn't going to be the head coach. So he had a decision to make. Does he continue on as the defensive coordinator forever? He and Joe didn't get along very well. That's one of the green ironies of this whole thing. They were very different personalities. You mentioned religion earlier. I actually believe that Catholic versus Protestant played a huge underground role in this case specifically with regard to not just how Joe and Jerry didn't get along, but also their wives didn't get along. Mm. Um, And so um, you have Jerry deciding, well, maybe I just give my life to the second mile. And that's when he decides to take the very, very long retirement. Also, it should be pointed out, Penn State was offering at that time in 1998, Penn State was offering, uh, I guess you would call it extra benefit retirement packages. 
for, for whatever reason, I don't know, budgetary reasons, they were offering an extra stimulus for people to retire. And so Jerry took the package and there was nothing nefarious about it. It went on for two years. And, and by the way, it should be pointed out that the day after Jerry, Jerry announces his retirement, his picture is on the front page of the local paper. And he's playing miniature golf uh, with a boy uh, who looks like um, he came up to about Jerry's shoulders. Ha- husky guy looks very happy playing miniature golf. Um, that would end up being victim number four, one of the key victims in the case, uh, Brett Houts. Uh, and and this 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 is of course, you know, in my view, if you look at the picture, it, picture says a thousand words. There's no way that. Jerry Sandusky was sexually abusing this guy. So, but then again, it, the, weird, the weird thing to me is that he retires, but then he gets the he he gets this close to the Virginia head coaching job a year into retirement, and only because well, Al Gro only because Al Gro got fired from the Jets, right? Uh, I mean, really, that he, that he didn't it get was it, yeah. his job. It was it, in we think right, right? that, it was that whole job. episode. That whole episode is fascinating on so many levels. Um, I'll tell this story very quickly, but it's a great story. So. What made Jerry Sandusky famous is winning the 1986 National Championship game against Miami when his defense intercepted the Heisman Trophy winner, Vinny Testaverde, five times. I believe that if Penn State loses that game and Vinny Testaverde throws five touchdowns instead of five interceptions, Jerry Sandusky never gets arrested because no one cares about Jerry Sandusky because he's, <laughs> he's not a thing, okay? But this, this makes him a thing in the history of college football. So keep that name in mind as we fast forward here. So Jerry, is, he retires in 1999 to great acclaim. He's the assistant coach of the year. He's carried off the field in his last game. Sports Illustrated writes a, a glowing uh, you know, a back page a profile on Jerry Sandusky and his retirement. And he's retired for a season. By the way, interestingly enough, Penn State's defense next year sucks uh, after Jerry leaves. Mm. I don't know if that was because of him, but okay. And Jerry gets offered the Virginia head coaching job. He has at least four meetings. It's reported about widely in the newspaper. If there was any inkling at all that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile, Penn State could have sabotaged Jerry Sandusky at Virginia with literally one phone call. Jay Paterno, Joe Paterno's son, was a Virginia graduate assistant. He's married to a Virginia alum. The connections between Penn State and Virginia were voluminous on the on, on the football side of things. The idea that somehow Penn State had any any concerns about Jerry Sadowski is is preposterous and blown away by the fact that Jerry gets offered the job. However, on the last meeting, he can tell that something is amiss. The person he's with, the administrator, takes a phone call, and he, as he describes it, the weather changed. When they came back in and they they end the meeting, Jerry has a contract in his hand. He's still deciding whether or not to do it because he doesn't know whether or not he can leave the second mile. There's talk about whether or not this, this, they could set up a second mile a chapter in Charlottesville, Virginia. And then at, at that book signing on December 30th of 2000, he's watching ESPN and he finds out that Al Groh, who had been the head football coach in the New York Jets, has gotten the Virginia job. Al Groh was a Virginia alum. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Even Jerry Sandusky figured out what happened here. And that is that Al Groh had lost the last three games 
of the season with the Jets. They missed the playoffs after they were expected to make the playoffs. And Al Groh was the person that was calling Virginia desperately to say, hold everything with Jerry. I want the job. Al was actually on the search committee for that coaching position. So that's what changed the weather in the room with Jerry Sandusky. They had gotten a call from Al Groh. And then the Paul Harvey-esque element of the story is that why did Al Groh know he was going to get fired from the Jets after they lost the last three games of the season? Well, they had a quarterback of that New York Jets team that played really lousy those three games. <laughs> His name was Vinny Testaverde. I was just going to ask if it was Vinny. <laughs> and like, now you know <laughs> the rest of the story. Yeah, it's a, it, there's just cases just so dizzy. I mean, so you've – okay. What the fuck is going on with your life now that this is this this is your uh what where do you stand in well what are you doing right now just in general are you still are you on another are, are you on another different kind of story uh, story trail um what's up with you well it's a good question my wife asks me that all the time <laughs> um um this has been devastating to my career, my life. I'm in the process, I believe, of starting a new podcast with Liz Zabib, who is my co-host on With the Benefit of Hindsight. We've been trying to get this off the ground, calling it the, the death of journalism, Nice, uh, which uh, is is a, an area of expertise of, for both Liz and myself. Um, we're, we're planning on starting this in the next couple of weeks, although this has been killed once before and then got revived and then was on life support, and I, I think it's going forward, but um, I, I, I hesitate to say anything is certain in this day and age, but that's the intention in the next couple of weeks. Um, I had been writing as a senior columnist for Mediate for the last several years until about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. Um, I, I left that job because I just couldn't take the COVID narrative anymore. I Mediate is a is a left-leaning, at least, oh, um, uh, outlet. And, um, you know, to me, you know, if, if you're, if you institutionally still in, uh, you know, the end of last year, still believe that mask and vaccine mandates uh, slow transmission, um, then I, 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 I'm out. I can't. Yeah, it's a, it's a fiction. It's a fiction publication that you won't write I, for. I can't. It. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 it's a religion I can't be part of, and especially when I'm seeing my kids suffer so much. And, yeah. um, and so, um, in my mind, my career is over. I, I, I know I, you know, I, I still, I still do. I, bizarrely, Dan Abrams has had me on his TV show three times in the last few weeks to talk about different things. So, I mean, I'm still very active on Twitter. Um, I'm hopeful that this podcast, the death of journalism will get off the ground, but I'm, I'm very, 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 very much aware that unless a miracle happens in the Sandusky case, I'm basically a dead man talking. I mean, there's nothing that I can do. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's over for me. Um, I'm, I, I think of myself kind of as a guy who went to war and had his legs blown off. Uh, um, I mean, that's really the way I, I view my, my existence, which is a, a shame because I actually think I'm at the top of my game from a standpoint of media and political analysis <laughs> yeah. and commentary. It's funny I how I, that works. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I actually think I'm better now than I ever was when I had some very prominent jobs. I think back now, I think 
boy, I, I had no business in that job because um, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I didn't understand the world. Uh, but I've learned so much. I've learned so much about the world and humanity from this Penn State case. And I, I said it earlier, but I, I was being serious. I truly believe that I was more well prepared than anybody to understand what was happening with COVID because I had seen it all before. I had seen I knew exactly how this was going to go down. Yeah. I, I knew I knew we were doomed. It's going to sound bizarre, but I knew we were doomed from the moment that the Ivy League basketball tournament got canceled. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember I, that. I actually I believe that that was the, I believe that was the most underrated event in the history of the country. Totally. Because um, if you go through the timeline, that was the moment that we left the gravitational pull of the rational Earth never to come back. Um, and and so, um, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer that uh, COVID has changed the country, not COVID, but the reaction to it has, right. mm-hmm. has changed the country forever. And I believe that we are uh, effectively doomed as a nation. I, I've always felt we were in grave peril, but I thought I thought we were going to get to my natural life cycle, which, you know, 75 or whatever, that'd be 20 years. I, I thought there was a pretty good chance that I would die uh, with the United States still existing in its current form, I no longer believe that. I I do not believe that. I I I, I I don't know how long it will take, and I don't know exactly in what form, but we will break apart as a nation uh, yeah. uh, at, at some point within the lifetimes of people who are living. That's for yeah. sure. Well, I mean, it, it's sad to hear. Um, I respect you for basically being a martyr um, at that point. Like, it's it's sad. I mean, my respect doesn't really do much for as far as people getting a career back. But I mean, you know, it's it's uh, there were people I mean, I you know, I do another podcast where I we basically spent two years. It wasn't going to be a COVID podcast, but it became one because what the hell? I'm, I live in California. I'm going to go outside. I see just a bunch of faceless people covered in masks. It's all I can think about and talk about. Um, but I can't imagine somebody with your platform, um, you know, somebody who's been on, you know, today's show, you know, syndicated radio hosts and stuff, just all these things, having it, having that just taken from you just because you just believed in in representing the other side of a legal case well to be clear you know the sandusky thing was probably the final nail in the coffin yeah you've never strayed from controversy true the first well no i mean i i'm you know when i have people tell me well why don't you do this this or that i said well i have three and a half strikes against me (laughs) i mean already because one i'm not a celebrity uh two i defend jerry sandusky and Michael Jackson and Matt Lauer and uh, and you know other people uh, that have gotten unfairly accused, uh, but also I'm a conservative who's anti-Trump. So right there, I mean that's probably two and a half strikes. You don't really have uh, anywhere to run. Yeah, I, I'm a man. Yeah. I'm yeah. a man. I'm a man without a tribe. Uh, yeah, and- you're, but but that's what always has kind of been interesting about you going back to your KFI days and 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 you know going back to uh, the host. Uh, is is and going back to your your thing with John Cobalt. I mean, like you've you've when when pushes come when push comes to shove, and you've had to you've had to choose between career and truth. You've chosen truth, and therefore that's therefore you haven't stayed at any one job that long. And like 
I want to, I mean, I don't even want to bring this up because I, I hope you can come back one day to talk about your history with OJ Simpson, which is, I think, a very fascinating little part of your biography. I, I can tell the story now if you want. I mean, yeah, um, I, I'm running out of juice on my laptop, so I want to make oh, sure we don't lose anything. Oh, I, okay. Please, at some point, I mean, it doesn't have to be anytime soon, but that would be great. I would love We'd to love it. to have you. We want to do OJ, and, and, and based on your history with OJ, I feel like you're the man to do it. To, 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 I'd be happy to do it. I mean, I actually think my OJ story is my most underrated okay uh story um, tb to, to be continued yeah folks. that's a good t that's what we call yeah. the business a tease i love yeah and i and by the way just so you know i went to i went to karate with the oj kids when it happened i was going I'm, I'm in la as you i was still in la and i was going to karate when it happened that was a very close to home story you wow. weren't in la at the time but your yeah. involvement is i'm excited to, to to dig into this was a lot of fun john all right. Well, good. Let's yeah. uh, look forward to doing that. All right. I and I appreciate you guys being open-minded on the case and, and being willing to, to no, speak out no, it's, it. it's great. It's great. Well, everybody uh, make sure you follow Zygmunt Freud on Twitter. Uh, you can find all his stuff there. Um, as we said, we talked about earlier, we talked about your podcast. Um, anything else I'm missing Wherever with the benefit find. of hindsight. Yeah. With is the, it's on Apple podcasts or what yep. you can find yeah. the whole, all the episodes yep. there. And, you can, and everything else about the, the, the raw interviews for the, for the podcast can be found at framing paterno.com and, nice. and keep, keep an eye out for the death of journalism. Wonderful. The death thanks. of journalism. All right. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. All right. That's it for more stimulating cock radio.